Hello and welcome to the Good Time Show. This is Sriram and Arthi, and we just had probably one of our most interesting guests on the show today. We had Balaji Srinivasan, and for folks who know Balaji, you know that he is one of the most interesting people you could ever come across. You know, he's a farmer, tech founder, entrepreneur, angel investor, venture capitalist. Most recently, you know, he's just this deep thinker, author of the Network State. We covered a lot about that and really went deep into what does it mean to start a country? What does it mean to be a you know what is transhumanism? You know, I think Balaji's tweet really summarized the whole episode. It said from Tair Sadam to transhumanism, which I thought was like really interesting because it was such a wide spectrum of topics. It was yeah. so fun. I think there are going to be two kinds of people listening to this. One. There are people who are going to know who Balaji is, and this is going to be a surprise because this is Balaji like you never heard him before. Mm-hmm. And two, there are people who have never heard who Balaji is, and oh my goodness, are you in for quite a ride, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen? Over three hours of distilled Balaji Srinivasan. Enjoy. Welcome to the Good Time Show. Let's get into it. Welcome, welcome, welcome! I know we took a break last we, week. We, we did. Hope everyone here had a fantastic Fourth of July weekend. If you're in the US or just a great weekend, anywhere you are. And what did what did we do last weekend? We were one of those really annoying people who posted photos from our vacation. You know, I think there was this whole meme about like stop posting about like stop mm-hmm. posting European photos, and we actually ended up doing exactly that. Yeah, we had the whole experience: delayed flights, lost missed, baggage, lost bags. Still haven't gotten one of the bags. So uh, th- that is right. Gone into ether. That is right. There's an airline holding on to a bag of ours, but no, we, we it was great fun. And actually, you know, I think for me, and I think for you, you know, it's kind of good to catch up on just reading. I hadn't. Yeah. I didn't have time to just read stuff in a while, yeah. so I got to read well both like fiction and nonfiction on the the fiction side. Read some great like Stephen King. Uh, read some... You're one of those like speed readers. Like Shreem's one of those people who would just like be on a two hour flight and he would like start a book. When we land, he'd be like, "Ah, yeah, I finished that book and I started this other book." And then you know, I like read like fifty percent of it, and fifty percent is like four hundred pages, and I swear, I'm every single time I'm like, well, I don't think you actually read the whole book. Which that doesn't prove it. I think when I see Arthi reading a book and she <laughs> and she would call me out and she'd be like, well, that was an amazing scene. I'm like, yes, that yeah, that's right, that amazing scene. Yes, that was. Awesome. I I just feel like our traversal paths are so different. Mine's like very depth first, and yours like breadth first. Yeah, you know, I think you skim through the book and then you kind of like. Yeah, I, I think I had this lesson. I think it's harder on fiction. But in nonfiction, I think one of the sort of the unlocks for me was something that I learned from Mark and I think from Naval, which is like, you know, going through childhood, right? Like, you know, you had this guilt if you didn't finish a book and you were like, I need to take this book, finish it, then go more on to the next one. Mm-hmm. And this started feeling, it felt like a luxury and felt so wrong, but yeah. you don't need to do that. You can just open a book and just, if you don't like Why it. Why not though? Why not? Because you have limited time. You have limited time to read. And sometimes books are not good. And honestly, there are a lot of nonfiction. Well, I think that's true for abandoning books. But when you like a book, you that, have to that, read it end to end. That is fair. But you know, actually, we're going to talk about the book tonight. I think sometimes you can just kind of yeah. seek through a book <laughs> yeah. uh, and just flip through and find the interesting chapters. Yeah. And But no, we had, I had a lot of fun reading and also wrote a lot of code, which I haven't done in quite a while. Yeah. I, I always wanted to... I remember you sitting in a coffee shop in Copenhagen, just writing... Rascode. Rascode, yeah. Is that 
kind of cool. I, it, I don't know if that coffee shop has seen a lot of people coming in and writing. Uh, uh, oh, it was, it was just fun. And I think, by the way, Russ is super fun, but I'd never gotten below beyond Hello World before. But this time, for the first time, I actually wrote some fun stuff and learned a lot. And, you know, but by the way, nobody should trust me when it comes to writing code. I should never be allowed to check in anything interesting, but it was kind of fun. And I'm now a Rastafarian or Rust. Or whatever, <laughs> yeah. What was, well, there's a fun term out there, but uh, that is great. And but you, know, but anyway, so we have someone interesting, controversial, special, polarizing, brilliant. I mean, we've known Balaji for how long now? Ten years, I ten think. Years. I, I looked it up. It's, we've known him for ten years. One of my earliest emails to him is almost exactly. Why did you email him? I, I'm going to get into it with him, but I think at the time he had this company, 21 E6, you know, 21 Par. Yeah, six, yeah, ten past six, twenty-one million for Bitcoin, yep. and and I think at the time I was at Facebook, and I had reached out to him because I think I'd seen his talk or something he's writing, but I remember very clearly. We should talk about the story when he gets here, meeting him, and that whole encounter. But it's been ten years now, and I think all of us have been through so many life. A things. lot, yeah, yeah. No, you're going to talk a lot about that stuff. You know, like his early talks, going back to Stanford, like his move from Stanford. It's like it's legendary. The MOOC, yes. Oh my yeah, goodness, yeah, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just one of those, like, I think for me, what's been really interesting, just following Balaji's trajectory is like, what, like, he's just this amazing multidisciplinary thinker. Mm-hmm. Like, here's a guy who can, like, talk about crypto, talk about, you know, genomics, talk about, like, geopolitics, which you're going to talk about a lot now. He yeah, was a CTO of Coinbase at some mm-hmm. point in time. And it's just, like, a lot, just done so much in such a short time. So, I'm I'm really excited. I don't know if you saw my IG story, but I just sent like four straight stories being like, I am so excited about this episode. It's just going to be really fun. One, you know, we've known Balaji for a while and, you know, kind of lucky to be friends with him. But one thing was when I went back in history and you go watch his, kind of his breakout talk, which he did at YC Startup School in 2013. 2013 yeah. There's almost this through line that you can draw. But that, that through line exists with all of his public work, and, I would and not say with this book. With this book, uh, which we're obviously going to get into. But also, I think every single technology conversation I've had with him, political yeah. conversation I had with him, every single encounter. So he's he's very consistent. Yes. And, you know, I have to say, I'm a little jealous about this part of him, which is, I should tell him when he comes on, which is, it's not often that you see somebody who kind of has this unity of purpose yeah. through almost like a decade. I think, actually, honestly, a much longer much period longer of his time. life, which yeah. is, he's been working on the same team, idea, you know, pushing it forward. And you know, I don't think I have anything like that. I don't think most people have anything like that. I'm kind of jealous. Like, he has this kind of this real purpose to yeah. what he's been doing and he's been doing it a very long time. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very core to what you would find in like this research, mathematical kind of mentality almost where it's like, you know, it, you have to like be consistent, have this one particular worldview of problems where you just like, the arc of time just goes through like you trying to like eventually solve this mm-hmm. this one consistent set of problem spaces and just like figuring that out. So yeah, I, I, I really enjoy like all that he's like, the network state was really good. We, we're going to talk about mm-hmm. that. And it's just, it, there's just a lot to go unpack today. Yeah. the other I think, do, you, do you think it's going to be a 60 minute episode? Oh my goodness. Probably, uh, you know, unless, you know, somebody has a technical malfunction. I and think we Tim lost- Ferriss in the podcast said something like, we want to keep it to like an hour and a half to two. 
famous last words. And then I think it was like, what, three and a half hours, something yep, like that. Yep. And there's just so much to cover. And I think one thing I actually want to do is I, I feel like a lot of people know Balaji for his, his presence on Twitter and his yeah. writing. Yeah. But there's so much about the, you know, his, just his persona. He's so funny. He's very loyal. He's just a kind of a great human being. And you know, I don't think that Maybe I think the folks who have just known him in recent times maybe don't know that. And you know, it's super fun to kind of like try and get across. So, Man, I really wish he was here to like listen to you say all that. Hello. Hey, Balaji. We've just, we've just been talking about you before you showed up. Yeah. Hopefully Sh- only Sh- good Sh- things. For, for once, surprisingly said some like nice things about the guest. And I was like, dang it. Like, yeah. Balaji is not here to listen to. You know, let me tell you, Balaji. First of all, welcome. Welcome. Thank you for doing this. But, I, you know, I was I was telling, you know, all of our audience here that a lot of people, you know, you know, a celebrity, we've been for a while and a lot of you know you. We knew quick. you when. We knew you went, right? Yeah. Which you're going to get into, right? How long have known you and so on. But a lot of you know you for your writing and, you know, your tweets and your ideas. But, you know, I was telling folks here, there's a lot of part, other part of you, you know, you're funny, you're incredibly loyal. And as a friend, you're kind of a warm human being. And there's kind of this whole other part of you. But uh, thank you for doing this. How are you doing? How is, how, how are you? Well, it's very kind of you. Thank you, Sri Ram. And, you know, I've, I've known, I think you and Arthi both before, before you blew up and, you know, it's being like fun to I kind of you, watch. I don't think it's like, being physically like put on weight. Is it you, you can tell us. You can tell us. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I mean, blew up in, in obviously the good way. Not, you know, I actually <laughs> think you're, you look exactly the same, actually, as a few years ago. Yeah, it's the Indian genes, uh, Balaji. It's the Indian genes. Well, I, 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 perhaps so. That's right. But yeah, no, I'm doing good. And I think, oh man, a lot. Of, I mean, this was a this was actually a lot of work. But I actually only feel I'm kind of at the the halftime. Uh, it was halftime halftime mark. You know, midway line or something like, like Katy that. Katy Perry at the Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah. No, so I'm basically, uh, you know, what I where I've shipped with, you know, so you know, the book is at the networkstate.com. It's free online, etc. Cetera, et cetera. What I've shipped is basically, I very much think of it as a V1 because yeah. I've I've so much stuff that I want to add and all these supplements and code snippets and figures and millions of things that I just didn't have the time to put in in, in the kind of ship or die, you know, deadline, self-deadline, etc. for myself. But anyway, we'll get more, more, more yeah. will come, basically. Go we, ahead. Uh, well, wow. Okay, there you go. And we're going to get right into so much of the book. But, sure. you know, I was preparing for this and, you know, I actually went and looked up Balaji, do you have a guess? Do you have a sense of how long we've actually known each other? On the order of 10 years, I think, but known each other exactly. more yeah. recently. Yeah. 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 Really, exactly. I was looking through my emails and, you know, I think we met. I, I don't know if you remember this. We met around 2013. And I remember this very well because you had just, by the way, blown up because of your YC talk. Uh-huh. And I, you know, like I always do, had cold email Balaji. I was like, you know, the, the startup school 2013. The, the yeah. startup school 2013 talk yeah. and which i think is time and a lot of people kind of just were like well who's this guy and you know you get <laughs> and you kind of had this uh, i mean you always had a fantastic career even before sure that, sure, but sure sure but that was my first public speaking actually i think yeah. there was this big moment and i remember i think i had cold emailed you and i was at facebook at the time yeah and i think at the time you were maybe doing 21e6 or maybe thinking about doing 21e6 but i vividly remember meeting you and you were probably the first person to really help me understand bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Oh. And sadly, I should probably go on home and I, bought a bunch of... What good did that do? Yeah, but I remember distinctly meeting you. And in a true story, you know, I came back home and I told Arthi, I was like, I met this guy, right? And he's the most brilliant, crazy, 
funny person I've ever met. Like I remember, like I, I think in, in one of the offices in San Francisco, we met and we walked around, and I was so struck. And you know, one of the interesting things, you know, uh, we should play the video of your YC startup school thing. One of the things that I mean, really blew me away is if you go watch that talk now and all the way to the book now, it's like there's kind of this unity of purpose and yeah. mission. Oh, here we go. Here's the talk. Let, let's. I want to watch this for a few. Let's just sure, a few seconds. Sure. Super fun. Sure. Talk about what come. Yes, I guess you guys all about that. But let me introduce myself briefly while things are loading here. So my name is Balaji Srinivasan. There's actually 12 people with my same first and last name in the Bay Area alone. In in fact, I randomly ran into another one of them at Stanford and founded a genomics company with them. So my I go by my full initials BSS and I am Stanford lifer. I got my BSMS PhD at Stanford. And in 2006, I started teaching computer science and statistics there. So I want to ask you, what? What was the story behind this? What led to this? And, you know, like walk me through this whole moment and what do you remember from this? What I remember from this? Well, it's funny because, you know, first of all, nowadays I would never introduce myself as a Stanford lifer or anything like that anymore. And the reason is I think like academia was it was starting to be in decline then, but now is like in steep decline. And I don't actually even think of that as a like a like a useful credential or something anymore. I've got this concept of crypto credentials. Instead, you can evaluate people around the world by whatever objective metrics they've they've developed, right? But coming, I'll come back to that later if you want. But what's going through my head? So this was in October 2013. It was YC Startup School. And actually, you know, a bunch of other folks who you'll recognize were there. Dixon, Chris Dixon, you know, our colleague gave a give a talk. Yeah. And when I, I actually saw that video when I was watching this. It's yeah. like, it's pretty fun to kind of go back in time. Yeah, it's kind of go back in time. And, you know, Jack Dorsey gave a talk then. And, you know, it was, it was something like drink red wine and and stand up straight or so, some sort of inscrutable cone-like, you know, kind of thing, which was which is funny or whatever. You know, it's like, and and various folks, you know, gave talks like that. I thought were all perfectly, perfectly good. And, you know, kind of like within what I call the mainstream of tech, you know, at that mm-hmm. time. Still kind of the matrix of tech, but basically what what YC and SV Angel and Founders Fund and A16Z by that time had established as like the through lane, which is seed A, B, C, you know, like the like the entire sort of YC machine, which credit to Paul Graham built from basically scratch in 2005. And it was something that, you know, funding very young people, funding mm-hmm. web only, all of this stuff was very non-consensus 17 years ago, you know, or so, right? So this machine was kind of in 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 you know full bore at that time, and I understood it, but I was not not really of it in the sense that you know with genomics and with doing like a non YC thing and Bitcoin and so like that was I mean Coinbase was a YC startup at that mm-hmm. batch, but YC is still not really Web three and you know like it's not it's not like their core thing. They do a lot of things well, you know, and so yeah. but it's 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 still not like their core thing. Whereas, you know, let's say A6 and Z, of course, has gone much more into that, right? Partly because I think I was there. Anyway, so running into this, I kind of wanted to, I had been thinking about these things for a long time because with genomics, you know, at first I thought that it was a technical problem in terms of, you know, we need to actually be able to get these genotype phenotype maps. In, and and why, why get these maps? Well, for life extension, you know, for curing diseases, you know, did you see my my uh, tweet about how super soldier serum is real? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah I, uh, I know. There's like a, a Marvel, you know, Chris Evans Captain America Captain joke America, in there somewhere. Yeah. So this just shows what has what is being held back 
in mm-hmm. biomedicine. Okay. So this tweet, super shoulder serum is real, just to show you what it is. On the left is a wild type mouse, meaning a naturally occurring mouse. On the right is a myostatin null mouse. And just look at the size of that chest, you know. I think in India they would say 22 inch biceps or something like that, right? You know, mm-hmm. and the and then you compare that to the before and after of like you know the uh, yeah so so that on the left is a wild type mouse on the right is the myostatin null mouse. Look at the size of that thing, and look at the chest, and it's basically just like the you know thing from the movies with you know Captain America, Steve Rogers before and then after Super Soldier Serum, he's like super jacked, right? And so and this paper, when do you think it came out? You think it came out like last year or the year before? Uh, I'm guessing not. Come by out. that by that leading question. Yeah. <laughs> when was like don't tell me it's like 1976 or something. It is basically it's 2007, you know. Wow. Okay. okay, but yeah. The, the thing yeah. is, okay, so you think this is cutting edge stuff. There's so much stuff like this literally and I've actually potentially got another book in me on just this. Hundreds of pages of insane life extension, you know, transhumanism, brain machine interface, mm-hmm. like human improvement type stuff. And you know, what's interesting is you talk to people about this and some people are you know, they're for universal healthcare. They're really mad about universal healthcare. Yeah. And then you say, I want life extension. And they suddenly are like, that's impractical. We can't, <laughs> we can't do yeah. that. You know, I'm like, you know, is, is the point to move the mashed potatoes around on the plate and extend somebody's life from like 75 to 78 years at some co- or is it mm-hmm. to increase the envelope for everybody and yeah. actually go back to life expectancy, which used to be a big measure of civilizational yep. legitimacy and start boosting that, right? And not just yeah. life expectancy, lifespan, but health span, which is yeah. like, could we extend the period during which you're like, like you're in your 20s, you know, you're muscular, you've got good attention and, right. you know, you heal and so on. Like, there's almost nobody who gets older who likes that, right? This would be one of the most popular products ever. And David Sinclair and, you know, Andrew Huberman and others have kind yeah. of written yep. and talked about yep. this, right? Okay. Yeah. And then, so, uh, you know, I'm actually big, I, I, you, would you, you, I'm a big fan of like the Andrew, uh, the, the table of the dragon tyrant and yeah, all, all that fun stuff. Wait, I, I, I want to get to life explaining just a bit. Wait, wait, I'll, I'll connect get... all the dots. I'll, connect, I'll come back to the yeah. start school talk. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I want to get back to the talk. Yes. I'm going back to the talk. So this is the background motivation was in order to, at first I thought getting to that kind of stuff was a technological problem. So I, you know, did my, PhD work in nominally in electrical engineering. I certainly learned about circuits and stuff, mm-hmm. but like genetic circuits. So the statistical reconstruction of genetic circuits of microbes and of humans. And I published papers in like dosing algorithms and other types of stuff like pharmacogenetics, all kinds of different genetics. And I learned about that. So I did get the domain knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a technical problem. And there are technical problems to solve. But then over time, I was like, oh, actually, it's a logistical problem. We have to build like a lab. To actually do mm-hmm. it because academic labs are not meant for doing thousands, hundreds of thousands of samples. And then eventually, though, I realized it was a regulatory problem because the FDA cracked down on the entire genomic space and, you know, in general, quantified self and so on in the early 2010s and cracked down on 23andMe, cracked down on personal. That's why we don't have billions of personal genomes. They bottleneck the whole thing through the medical system so that you have to go and get a prescription from your doctor to right. go and, you know, get this. It, it, it'd basically be like, I need to call an electrician to get a computer. It's not like doctors are experts in genomics. You know, it's like, right. it's like this whole thing, right? It's, yeah. it's also like, you know, you, you can't, it's like not being able to look in the mirror. You can't get your genome down on a, a download on a computer. So yeah. once I realized it was a regulatory thing, I was like, oh, okay. This was a barrier I hadn't thought about as much because most people don't really hear bad things about the FDA. And then I realized why that was the case. This book came out called Reputation and Power. 
which actually talks about how the reputation of that agency was the key to its power. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this book, Reputation Power, it's written by an FDA sympathizer, right? But you can sort of read it with a different lens on it. And, and, and I'll come back to the talk in a second. Okay. So it says basically like the US FDA is the most powerful regulatory agency in the world. How did the FDA become so influential? How exactly does it wield extraordinary power? Reputation power traces the history of FDA regulation, you know, and it's like how the FDA cultivated a reputation for competence and vigilance. So as soon as you start hearing stuff like that, you're like, oh, it cultivated this? Oh, it's like, it's like an active mm -hmm. player. Oh, I thought it was like the DMV. I thought it was just like a checkboxy right. kind of thing. You don't think about the DMV cultivating itself or doing PR. And then you look yeah. at the FDA actually- You definitely don't hear about DMV sympathizers. You don't want to be doing it. You, you, you look and you're like, oh, FDA actually has dozens of like PR offices out there. Oh, and then you get into the guts of it. It's like before they announce an enforcement action, they will go and pre-brief an establishment journalist so they can like pincer attack it, right? So the journalist is like, this fraudulent company is putting dihydrogen monoxide in its products. And, uh, you know, that dihydrogen monoxide sounds very scary. Sounds very scary, right? And if you're yeah. not technical, you're like, you know, you can say, well, dihydrogen monoxide at high temperatures can cause scalding and, you know, like asphyxiation and, so, and it's, it's H2O, it's water, right? And mm -hmm. so if you, you know, I'm not saying every single thing that they say is like that, but a surprising number of things when you go yeah. and look at them are like that. And they are, they are these denunciations that sound forbiddingly technical to somebody outside the space. But right. then when you're in it, it's actually very TSA-like, you know? It's, it's, very, it's very much something where if you didn't, hadn't gone through the TSA, you would actually believe them when they say that they're finding all these guns and drugs and terrorists and what have you. But when you've gone right. through it, you realize you can't complain about it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So having gone through this, I realized, wow, actually, it's not a just a technical or logistical problem. It's a regulatory problem. And when you get to the regulation, you realize, oh, the regulation is justified by history and mm -hmm. it is a jurisdictional problem and a historical problem and a moral problem and ultimately, ultimately, a sovereignty problem. Yep. Yep. Okay. 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 So wait, I, I, I want to... Okay. The word sovereignty is loaded and we're going to go deep sure. on this, you know, yep. because I think there's a line from the sovereign individual all the way to your book. Throughout. Yes, sure. But, no, I, so, I disagree okay. some points in it. Go ahead. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We, we're going to spend a lot of time on your book. But okay, have you seen any of the recent movies about multiverses or alternate timelines? I don't know. I'm not sure you watch uh, Hollywood, the latest offerings from Hollywood. But I actually you know, I, I probably haven't. Which yeah. ones are you talking about? Uh, like Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness or everything, everywhere, all at once. But then the, the central theme of a lot of these movies is there is a person's life and then there is a point and then they split. There's alternate timelines and there's a version A and the version B with like this defining moment. And I have this theory about you, Apology, that, you know, there is a version of you, you know, until the talk, right, which is, you know, well-known Stanford, Silicon Valley, central casting, you know, person of Indian descent founder, <laughs> right? And that there's a timeline where you go on, you build companies, you never get into Twitter fights, you know, you're, <laughs> you know, you're like, you know, the CTO of some company, you know, sure, sure, sure. It, 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 you know, to toiling, toiling in useful anonymity, productive anonymity. Yes. Uh, wow. You know, toiling, yeah. Poo poo's the pandemic doesn't uh, call it. Yeah, well, but that, that. The, you, you, no, no fights with journalists. That's one Balaji who's living in a multiverse somewhere out there. But there's other Balaji, you know, who had the, the multiverse of madness. Yeah, who had the who had the YC talk happen to him, right? And everyone went like, "Who the heck is this guy?" Right? Like, you know, wearing you know this brown hoodie coming out. And by the way, the slide deck, by the way, for folks, we should we should go check it out. 
you have this amazing opening slide which basically compares the United States to Microsoft. Yeah. I don't know whether you remember that. It I remember this, yeah. Pause for applause. Yeah. It, the, the crowd just kind of goes bonkers there. Yeah. It, okay. it, it, like, and, and, you know, people are like, well, who is this guy, right? And I feel like your life kind of took a separate path from then. You know, there was white piece and blah, blah, blah. So I'm curious, right? So why, what, you know, it feels like, you know, what made you embrace this, right? This being transhumanism, you know, the fight Anti against anti-workness, anti yeah. you know, the sovereign individual, because there's kind of like a, you had this amazing kind of career, technology career, or, and you could have just done that, sure. you know, not been active on Twitter, you know, but then you chose this, right? And I think that sort of, what caused that? Yeah, so, so uh, good question. So I'd say, you know, the parallel universe life, I, I think I have thought about that from a somewhat different standpoint, which is like, what would I be like? Or, what you know, because thinking about history, you think about, you know, the past and so on. Like, what would you be like if you were born 100 years ago, 200 years ago? And probably I would have been like an academic mathematician, you know? So that's what I would have been, you know, in, in a previous life, you know, and, and just this done that. Like speaking to me because that was one of like the things that I wanted to do in life where it sounds ridiculous and boring and all of that. But to me, it was like really exciting. Yeah. I think Trump's one of his earliest gifts is like this huge book called mathematics yeah but, 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 but I think one thing Balaji you and Arty are very similar in one thing which is both of you are obsessed with Ramanujan oh yeah um, yeah yeah sure yeah I mean obsessed I'm not, I, I, I pay my respects I pay my respects that's I think yes right true yeah I mean similar I think you know I, 1729 the taxi cab numbers which has got like an incredible story you know and it's also like it's a Hardy Ramanujan number. I kind of get annoyed when people call it the Ramanujan number because people don't uh -huh. give enough credit to Hardy because uh, he's Hardy, the guy who walked yeah. Hardy's yeah, he basically I'd spotted Ramanujan and he, that was a point where by that time Ramanujan was like really sick and he comes to go visit him and he says, you know, I hope this is not a bad omen. Right. I got off the taxi cab and the license plate number is 1729 and Ramanujan's like, what are you talking about? That's like a really interesting number mm -hmm. oh, yeah. and, you know, goes on to go explain it. And, you know, that whole sequence, it's now called taxi cab numbers. And not just that, like calculation, fastest calculation of pi, just like a lot of work that he's done are like foundational to what we are doing with like, you know, basically every industry yeah. out there. It, it, one of the things I think, you know, so by the way, we, you know, we are both from Chennai, which is, you know, where Ramanujan originally sure. from, you know, his video, and it, folks may not, you know, when I was growing up, we knew Ramanujan because he's a very famous mathematician, but you know, in Chennai, you're like, you know, he's a fellow Chennai person. Sure. Um, I, mean, you, I think we are famous for like math, chess. Yeah, yeah, lots of nerdy people. <laughs> but, you know, you didn't realize how young he had died. He had died at the age of 31 or 32. 32. You know, yeah. he had this, I think, what people don't think is kind of an amoebiasis and he had this like food-related thing and he was strictly vegetarian. A lot of things happened and he died at 31, 32. But you don't realize how much he accomplished at like such That's a young age. age. So, oh, yeah. so, okay, so, do you think, so, Balaji, do you think the Balaji of 100 years ago would be like filling out notebooks with math formula and not writing books or tweeting? Well, so the thing about it is, if I felt that society was moving in the right direction, then I'd be fine with just sitting and doing math. And that would be my contribution. You know, it's something I enjoy. It's my contribution to the world. And, you know, basically, you know, I, I just would, I, I feel like someone else had it, you know, okay, you got it. Boom. I can just come and just do my math. And maybe nowadays I do math and I'd play video games or something like that, which I enjoyed doing as a kid. And, but the thing is that once I realized that, you know, the nettle must be grasped that, you know, it's, it's a little bit like you're, you're in some blog or you're on some tweet thread and someone said something incorrect and you wait, no one else is saying something and everybody is going to, and it falls to you 
It mm-hmm. falls to you the responsibility of actually posting the correct fact, right? If you don't do it, no one else will, right? Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, well, I don't know if anybody else has put together these various things on regulation and, and so on and so forth in quite this way, because most of the folks who go through the whole FDA process end up going native or they're silenced. Why? Because, you know, it's, it's a thing about the TSA again, right? When you go to the airport, when you go into TSA line, are you making jokes about the TSA? No. In no. fact, I, I have. And then Arthi has forbidden me from she making jokes. you, right? Yeah, She's like, Because he gets randomly selected. Yeah, exactly. You know? Right. So why would you? So the thing is, you, you, you're, you know, you know the thing is a joke, but you do not joke yeah. about it. Instead, you roll your eyes and you put your, you know, water bottles or whatever. You throw out your water bottles. And, you know, the thing is, oh, but you're allowed like two ounce bottles as if you couldn't mix you know, this terrorist technology called mixing of two two-ounce bottles into a four-ounce bottle. Wow, right? And, you know, the, the, the regulations are absolutely moronic. And yet, you you know, you have to take off your shoes because some guy did yeah. a shoe bomb, whatever, years ago. And then you have to, everybody has to get their, their skin irradiated. By the way, just on the FDA topic again, like those body scanners are actually something that the FDA fast-tracked through for the TSA because the FDA will green light and pass on through anything that's like a fellow government agency or whatever. But whether they're actually safe or not is yeah. yeah. I, I, I remember the controversy about this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Last year, but wait, I want to come back. Anyway, so, so, so I think I'll, I'll, I'll finish my point. I'll finish my point. I'll finish my point. So yeah, the yeah. thing is, the thing is that basically, once you realize like that these guys are not just. I mean, we know that with Bitcoin and with cryptocurrency, that the SEC and CFTC and the entire U.S. financial that that they were holding back hundreds of billions of dollars in wealth creation maybe mm-hmm. in the fullness of time, trillions of dollars plus like the freedom of the world, okay? Right. And we know that the taxi and hotel regulators were holding back $100 billion at least in terms of ride sharing and room sharing and you know all, all these things. So what is like the FDA holding back? It's, mm-hmm. it's like holding back so much more than that. It's holding back your entire life. We literally, you know, like the time before like flush toilets and when people died from dysentery and so on, mm-hmm. we will think of this time as like the FDA time as that, okay? Mm-hmm. And so the scale of it, people don't understand it unless you've studied this because it's it's like Bastiat seen and unseen, you know? <laughs> you, do you know what that is? Yep, yep, yeah, good yeah. reference. Yeah. Reference, wait, wait, right? wait, I, wanna, I wanna ask you something, right? Because oh. I think most people, or a lot of people, you know, uh, especially in Silicon Valley, have some sense of this, right? We all- Now, you know, now they do. 10 years ago, we, it was not consensus. Yeah. Right, but right. I would say, you know, but they don't speak up about it, right? You might see something wrong on Twitter, but you might just go, you know what? I'm just going to let it slide. I don't want to get into a fight. I don't want to become a public figure. I don't want to you know, put my career on the line. I don't want to cause my employer any trouble. You don't trouble. want to get canceled. You don't want to get canceled, which, you know, I don't think this term exists 10 years ago, but, you know, but it is the spiritual equivalent of that. But you are different, right? Like at some point, you know, you seem to say, and a lot of people may disagree or agree with the, you know, what you kind of stand for, but you said enough is enough. I'm going to speak up. You know, you're very vocal, you know, you're not afraid to speak your mind and, you know, push your ideas. So was there a moment which made you go enough is enough and put yourself out there? I don't know if there's any specific one moment, but it's more something where, you know, when I really, so I think one way I am wired different is I'm completely okay with going back to zero, right? Like I can go back to a, you know, like featureless hovel with a laptop and give up all worldly possessions and reboot 
build myself back up from zero, build up. It's so funny you say that because Brian Armstrong said the exact same thing. Like, oh, really? Know, he, oh, his yeah. whole, you know, he talked about workplace and politics in the workplace and anti-woke stuff and all of that. And, you know, we asked the same question. You're like, did you not worry about repercussions and, you know, just you being canceled and all of that? And he was like, well, everything went to shit. I still have my laptop and I can still start over and I can, I built Coinbase from scratch and I can do it again. That's right. And it, it, Weirdly for us, like we were talking about it later, it felt like inspirational yep. almost. You know? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it, go ahead. Yeah, it's yeah, it is basically the you know people. Have you heard the term the the will to power in Nietzsche from Nietzsche? No, no. So the will to power is is a fundamental concept of Nietzsche, maybe the most fundamental concept, and it's often misunderstood. And people think it means power over other people or power over other men, right? But actually, have you ever seen the movie The Martian? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And so, you know, when the Matt Damon character is on, like, Mars, I think it's Matt Damon, and he says, he realizes he's stranded, okay? And he, and he says, I'm going to have to science the shit out of this, okay? That's the will to power, okay? There were no other humans for him to command on the surface of Mars. He had to just figure it out, right? And the power that we're talking about is a power over oneself, right? To become the best version of oneself and like the maximum form of self-improvement. And this is something which extends in many different areas. Like that's also the same theme as transhumanism or optimalism is to become the best version of yourself. And then when someone is stopping you from doing that and stopping everybody else from doing that and doing so with all kinds of intricate lies and, you know, rules and stuff that the you know, the evil school teacher, the principal, the bureaucrat, right? That is like, you know, you know, like the, in India, this concept of like the mongoose and the snake. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that kind of person, that sort of institutional authoritarian and like a personality like myself, we sort of just like face off over the great divide, you know, like, you know, you just like lock eyes and that person knows that like their laws were for me. Okay. That And conversely, I know that I am there to shift and move and push those things and establish a new equilibrium that is better than the one that they have, right? So that revolutionary zeal, you know, to, to drive change is, is, is there. It's a real thing, you know? Now, of course, that change should be for the better. And how do you prove it's for the better? Well, this comes back to like the concept of exit from the talk, which is, you know, you have to build something that's not just good in theory, but good enough in practice, which is a thousand little details that people actually flock to it of their own accord, of their own consent, right? They exit mm -hmm. to it, right? So the thing is that, now here's one other very important thing, is many times when you build that new thing, it's not, it, it's, it's a V3, okay? It's mm -hmm. not back to V1. Why? Mm -hmm. So you take, let's take Bitcoin example, then talk about the FD and then talk about the exit talk. So, you know, you have, you had gold, right? Let's call it V1. And then that was defeated by the U.S. government and more generally the fiat system. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's actually advantages to that because it's easy to transmit dollars in time and space and you can easily represent them on a computer and so on. Whereas gold, it's heavy. And if you actually use it without representing it on a computer, it's like extremely, you know, where you're going to do barter a, a, a chip, a chip of gold to somebody. It's like not very liquid. It's, it's mm -hmm. a backup, backup, backup plan. It is still right. a thing. Yeah. But it's it's not something that is very convenient for daily use, right? Then you go to V3 and, and Bitcoin, of course, people call it digital gold, 
but it actually has many aspects of fiat. You can represent it on a computer, you can write programs with it, and so on. And then other cryptocurrencies have different characteristics where you can send them more quickly or micropayments and so on. Okay. So the point is that that V3 has aspects of both the V2 and the V1. It's not simply a throwback. It acknowledges mm -hmm. that V2 defeated V1 and takes the best aspects of V2, even as it harkens back to the discarded aspects of V1. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that's another aspect of what like exit is about. Like, I actually don't believe that you can, uh, you know, end the Fed. I think you mm -hmm. can exit the Fed and build a better system. And I don't think you can end the FDA or the other regulatory agencies, but you can build a better version of them. Why do I say that? Because people actually want a regulated marketplace. Meaning yeah. if you look at consumer behavior, they actually want some form of A, star reviews, and B, kicks of bad actors, bands of bad actors, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. For example, eBay, Amazon, you know, in your time at Facebook, you know, you probably looked at Marketplace and so on. You know, even at Twitter, people, you know, so they want some quality ranking, like one star to five star. And they also want to kick out the zero star actors who are different. You know, a two star actor is somebody who's like well-intentioned, but just makes a low quality product. A zero star is like a smart hacker who's like evil yeah. and is trying to hack it, right? Those are two different failure modes, right? Yep. So you want a regulator of a marketplace. And in fact, if you think about it, the biggest tech companies are actually regulators of two-sided marketplaces. It's it's eBay and it's Airbnb and so on, but it's also actually PayPal with the fraud detection. It's Gmail with the spam filtering and so on. Point is that the entire exit talk that I gave was recognizing that there are certain aspects of the current system which have like succeeded that are V2s <laughs> and figuring out how we build a V3 because of how imperative it was to build a V3, but doing so in a morally consistent way where you're not coercing and forcing people to do it, but actually building that exit. Mm -hmm. And how do you build that exit, right? You build that exit through technology. Now, that might seem like a really novel and weird thing to say, but guess what? I have this kind of, you know, like little snippet in the book. Part of the reason that, you know, Columbus, do you know why they, you know, Columbus got funded to go and check out, you know, other paths to India? I actually just read his biography. So I got uh, at least this fantastic new biography on Columbus, which came out. So yes, uh, but you should, I think it's a fantastic story. You should give the story. So the Ottomans had blockaded the, you know, the normal path to India. And so they needed to use technology to find an exit, an alternative way. Now it turned out they found the quote, new world as a consequence of that in America and, you know, all the colonization that began as a function of it. But technology found an exit, right? And, you know, when people talk about, you know, the the final frontier of space, right? You're using technology to exit and, you know, find this sort of new realm, right? And, you know, when we when we have Web3 and Bitcoin, like, you know, one of Satoshi's, this is actually the, one of the, 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 today's frontier, one of Satoshi's important points was we can get through decentralization a domain of freedom for a period of time, right? Right. And, and so when you start thinking about it, you're like, oh, actually, and then oceanic navigation, like how did the Puritans and others leave England to come to the new world, mm -hmm. transatlantic navigation was an important technology that afforded them a new kind of exit, right? And exit reopens a frontier. So I've got like four examples there, right? Like, you know, you have the, the blockade of, you know, Ottomans, you have the, you have oceanic navigation, which is kind of similar, but different in time. You have, you know, space travel, you have the internet and, you know, not just crypto and web three, but the domain name, being able to set up a new mm -hmm. domain name. What, what did the social network movie begin with? The scene with Mark and his girlfriend. Uh, and he registered a domain name on networksolutions.com. Right. He got a patch of digital earth to build something, right? Thefacebook.com. Thefacebook.com. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Now, now, of course, that movie is fictionalized in many ways, but that yeah. part is true that yeah. there was a domain registration and there was a plot of digital earth 
that had zero value before he got it. And because it had zero value, there's no contention for it. But that plot of Earth now has 4 billion backlinks coming into it. Right. 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 Okay. And so, so that's why exit is so important. And that's why I talk, made, made the talk. So, yeah. I, I, you know, one interesting part is, in some ways, I want to, you know, get to your book in terms of, I think, yeah. the evolution of your ideas over the last 10 years. And, you know, we've had You've seen so many polished and, yes, yes. You know, I actually wanted to start off this podcast by asking, are you in a secure location? Uh, <laughs> sure. Uh, but I think the evolution of your ideas, and I think of you is just really fascinating because in some ways the book is kind of the culmination of, you know, well, at least a, over a, decade. Yeah, a milestone and a journey. So here you are, an academic, you're frustrated with the FDA, you're, you're seeing it up close because you obviously founded a company, right? You make this talk. What gets you into crypto? And then what gets you into, you know, thinking about wokeness? Because there's kind of the, the biology sphere, oh. you know, from 2013 expands dramatically from 2013 to where we are today. So what is that journey? Like, what was that? What led you down that path? Great question. By the way, if, you, if you're in the browser, go to thenetworkstate.com. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, thenetworkstate.com. Yeah, that's the, that's the website. If we, well, if we it's a Google free thing. book. Everyone should get it. It's totally free. I actually want. I think even the process of you writing the book, the typical, all we'll get yeah, in the. I, I guess I wanted to just ask, why start a country? Like, what's wrong with what we have? And ah. you know, why start it? What? Why now? Well, so well, okay. First, which one? Do I want to do that one or do I want to do the one that's your mass? Uh, I, I do. Uh, one? Well, like, why do you start okay. with what's your mass? Maybe we can okay, okay. The, I'll do yeah. yours because I just forgot what's your mass. So I'll, I'll answer yours okay. first. Okay. All right. So. <laughs> Uh, why start a country? Well, I actually, I have four, you know, intro little things on this, you know, in a, in a thousand words and an essay and so on. But the short version is why open a new document? Why have a blank sheet of paper? Why start a new company? Why have a bare plot of land? Why have, you know, a child? Why have a new anything? Right. And, you know, the answer is like, this is a fresh start. It's a, it's a clean slate and it's, you know, uh, not necessarily clean, clean slate always, you know, there's, there's some, some baggage from the, the old world, but the, the, the thing about this is it's, it's something where there's a, there's a rebirth, you know, and the value of that in at least the commercial realm, when you talk about a blank sheet of paper or a bare plot of land or a new company, how much, I mean, how many billions of dollars are spent on, you know, like, like just, just incorporation alone each year, mm -hmm. yeah. you know? Yeah. Clearly, the frontier is valuable to people because you can build something new that nobody else cares about. You've just created it. It's yours at the time you create it. It's 100% yours. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, over time, you can sell a piece of it, give it control, blah, blah, blah. Backlinks come in. I, mean, I keep using the term backlinks because I think that's a very powerful way of thinking about, you know, internet stuff. Yeah, because yeah. it's not just links in from, you know, Google's concept of backlinks is website A links to website B. We can generalize that to political power. When you mm -hmm. have a person over here, when they support a political leader, they, you know, they're pointing to that political leader. And when they support a different one, they're pointing to a different one, right? When they're in a jurisdiction, they have a pointer to New York. And when they have, when they're out of that jurisdiction, they have a pointer to SF. And if they're between the mm -hmm. two, they have pointers to both, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you start thinking about somebody as all the backlinks, you know, all the things that they're pointing to, mm -hmm. well, the, one of the reasons you want to do something new is you want something with no backlinks at all. Nobody cares about it. You can do whatever yeah. you want with it. You can screw it up. You can take risk. You know, you can write a, a program and it can crash, right? Mm -hmm. the, if you can, A, create something new and B, have nobody else 
affected by your failure, then C, you can take calculated risks. And without calculated risk, there is no reward. You know, what's funny is that all the tax forms and stuff, they have a box for how much money you made, but what they don't have is how much risk you took to make that money. That's a, that's a great line. <laughs> but what apologies many skills is, I think coming up with these amazing lines, which is kind of like, you know, stick in your head, yeah. uh, <laughs> you, you're a man of many skills. And so I want to get to the, so the book and the journey to the book, right? So, sure. you know, here you are. How do you go from FDA to crypto? Yeah, FDA to crypto to then books and, you know, so many other things that you do. So it's going to be an expansion of the Balaji verse. How sure. does that happen? Sure, sure, sure. So also, I, I would just one small asterisk. I would never define myself as anti-woke, but post-woke. Post-woke, and, okay. And the reason for that is, for example, we don't think of Indians today as anti-British, but post-British. They don't define themselves on the acts of being pro-anti-British. Even pro-British is obviously defined on the acts of, of Britain, but anti-British is implicitly defined by that as well. Perhaps you mm -hmm. have to be that for a time to gain independence, mm -hmm. but then you're moving on an axis that's different. And in fact, you know, now India has decent relations with Britain. Right? Basically, to your earlier point, it's V3. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's a Rishi, Rishi Sunak may, whatever, might yeah. be. I was going to say the next prime minister of Britain might be actually the multiple candidates, I think, that are running. Okay, but yeah, so back to you, post-work, but the, the Balaji verse expands. How does that happen? How does that happen? So, the thing is that, you know, Thoreau has this great saying, which is for a thousand, you know, who are striking the branches of evil, there's one who's striking the root. Okay. And so, you know, often that is like, you know, you want Terminator vision on the whole space and you're like there, right? Put all the energy there. And because you have finite energy, you have to, it's like allocation of resources, but of energy, right? And the thing is that it's, you know, there's a lot of people who are interested in reform and editing of existing systems and so on and so forth. And that's less work in some ways because the system exists and so on, but it's much more work for less results in other ways. You're just adding a small little clause or whatever. Conversely, what, you know, what I was thinking about with the strike the root aspect is if Bitcoin wins, then all transactions are default legalized. Everything mm -hmm. is winning buyer, win, uh, willing buyer, willing seller. Right. So, do, do you remember? Do you wait, remember wait, when yeah. you ran across Bitcoin in the first place? Yes, yes, yes. Paper? I will. I will. I will. I will say that. But basically, so what that means is you're not editing around one regulation or the other. You're at a stroke, putting a, a line through the entire legacy establishment of everything. Because if two parties do, you know, both want to opt out, they can opt out. Now, what'll happen is eventually you will rebuild new structures because people want something like a state. You will consensually recentralize. But what you do is you just deprecate the entire legacy thing at one stroke and you focus all your energies on that, right? Now, by the the, 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 rec, the resolution of these, the, the Hegelian synthesis, the V3, you know, of the thesis and synthesis is... The V3 is, so V1 is just kind of fruitless reform. V2 is total exit. V3 is fruitful reform that enables exit. For example, the NSF acceptable use policy in 1991 was one of the most important policy decisions ever. You know why? Because it legalized commercial traffic on the internet. Until 1991, the internet was for academics and it was for you know the military and so on. It was a, it was a very restricted network. And people fought the commercialization of the internet. And what they say, they said there was going to be spam and malware and porn on the internet. And they were totally right. That did happen. 
but you also got this massive, Everything you know, like, the inter- yeah, now the internet is like synonymous with commerce, right? Yep. Yeah. So it, it, actually, it, this is such an important point because I think when we talk about crypto and Web3, you know, I bring this up all the time, which is if you see, you know, people point to, you know, any of the bad behavior, right? I go back to in the 90s, right? And there were all these panics about porn and scams and all the bad things that you can do on the internet. Or but, even like, what is the practical application of the internet? Like, why do you want to be online when you can meet people physically? Or, or was like a thing. give the phone call and people right. making fun of, you know, like the at symbol and email addresses. But out of right. that, you know, came Google, came Wikipedia, came open source and, you know, all these amazing things, you know, social media and all these things have changed the world. And, you know, I think the arc and I really like the idea of like a clean line. The reboot is mm-hmm. so, so important. Yes, that's right. And so, so that connects the dots, right? Basically, you know, to get to life extension, you know, to get to transhumanism, to get past these obsolete regulations, we need to carve out at least some jurisdiction somewhere in the world where we can consensually experiment your body, your choice, medical sovereignty, mm-hmm. and do so in such a way that A, We've managed to get that jurisdiction in a peaceful way. Mm-hmm. As you know, B, we have managed to do so in a high reputation way. And this is actually just as important, in fact, even more important. Like one of the things that India did, and I talk about this, they achieved you know, independence from the British nonviolently, right? Now you can you can argue various aspects of that, but overall the premise of nonviolent independence is a really important one if you can do it. And I think like just Winning the moral battle, you know, if you're against life extension, you want us to die, right? Mm -hmm. Win that moral battle first online, Mm -hmm. okay? People have to concede. Look, if you're for universal healthcare, you better be for life extension, you Mm -hmm. know? If you're pro-life, you should probably also be for life extension. Maybe the the test you should ask people is, is that an age which you want people to die because you want to help them and then, but you're not for... You know, you know the boss from living forever. So it's an acceptable age for everyone to die. We use an interesting word, which I don't think a lot of people are familiar with: transhumanism. Yeah. Could you define what you mean by transhumanism? Sure. It's basically what everything in tech will be focused on in about ten years or so, maybe five. So, <laughs> <laughs> so bas- transhumanism is it's like human self improvement with technology. So it, it's it's a very wide set of things that encompasses quantified self. You know, like, you know, like external devices, it's body modification. It is, you know, the super soldier serum stuff that, you know, the myostatin null and yep. things like that. It is brain machine interface like Neuralink. It is nootropics like cognition enhancing drugs like the movie Limitless. It mm-hmm. is genetic modification like CRISPR for genetic diseases, you know, like sickle cell and other things are being treated with that and so on and so forth. It is basically it's a suite of AI used to augment human capabilities. It's bionics, mm-hmm. right? It is telepresence. It's mm-hmm. basically all the stuff which just powers up the human, you know, limb regeneration, life right. extension, all that right. stuff is transhumanism. Now, the thing is more recently, transhumanism has been attacked as something bad because the, like people will say when, it, when it's a, you know, transhumanism is just a change and whether that change is good or bad, you, you know, are you going to create the island of mishappen, you know, humans or whatever, like Quasimodo's mm-hmm. or, you know, as a function of this. And I understand that fear. And so the term that I use is optimalism. And I'm actually, I'm going to have a new chapter in the book on this. Mm-hmm. But optimalism is not maximalism. It's not fundamentalism. It's not just naive optimism either. It is like, 
you know, there's a stopping criteria, there's an optimal, like in the sense of uh, optimization. And you're like, okay, I want to get optimal health and mm-hmm. optimal fitness. And it's, and it implies what is every optimal, do you, have you guys done any optimization? Like, uh, I mean, it depends on what you mean by optimization, okay. but I think we kind of, the, like the median, your whole spectrum maximize, of um, like I have a, I have an Uda ring. I done. Okay. Some okay. Okay. Work, all that fun so, stuff. So, so it, if you, if you do optimization, like in the sense of mathematical optimization, it's often, oh, you framed, mean that? Oh, sorry. Okay, yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So uh, it's often, it's often framed as constrained optimization, like sure. maximize this function subject to these constraints, like this convex yeah. function subject to these convex constraints, it needs to remain within this polytope and, you know, attain its, you know, maximum or minima within that. Right. And so what you, what you do there is you actually are saying it's a practical thing, right? Optimalism acknowledges that practical constraints exist and does the best we can within those constraints, pushing against those boundaries, but recognizing that practical constraints exist, as opposed to, I think, ideologies that don't have any built-in stopping criteria. And actually, many of them don't. You know, I, I use the example of, let's say, Westism. Suppose that you were a Westist. What is a Westist? A Westist is somebody who likes the idea of California. So keep going West. They keep going West. They get the whole group. They're like, we must go West. They go West. They go West. They're in California. And then somebody's like, we need to keep going West. What, you're not a Westist? You cuck, you know? And so <laughs> they just keep going West. And they go, I think there is a tie between this and, you like, know, Tom Holland's Dominion and yeah. Wokeness, yeah. which is kind of the push towards, you know, Extremes. Christian values. And oh, yeah. you, there is. There is. There. I will talk about that. Yeah. So basically, you know, the, within the Westist group, you know, you might be an Eastist, you know, like trader or whatever, unless yeah. you just kept going West into the Pacific Ocean and then everybody drowns, right? And so that's a problem with the ideological direction, in my view, like left or right, you know, if you just keep steering your car left or right, that might be the correct direction at one moment, but you need to keep course correcting back and forth and not be thinking, you know, too much is never enough and, you know, so on. It may even turn out that you might need to make a hard turn one way or the other, or do things that don't fit to any one ideology. And the problem is that people only think in terms of direction, not destination, you know? And with this, the concept of exit, you now actually have a jurisdiction, a destination that you can carve out and that you can say, go here. And it's not about the ideology, it's about the results. Yeah. And, and the thing is, there's lots of things that, see, we know this in tech, but it's like not yet really understood. I should say not understood. It's not like like a like baked into everything in politics. So basically, there's a huge difference in theory and practice. Okay. Yep. The the entire two by two we've seen in tech, you've seen mm-hmm. like a pitch which looks really good, and where the person really executes. Okay. Mm-hmm. You've seen a pitch that looks really good, but the person doesn't execute. You've seen a pitch that looks really stupid, 140 characters. What? And then that changes the world. And then of course you've seen pitches that are really stupid and are actually really bad. But that whole I guess, two, like, I guess Balaji, the question then is like for transhumanism, what are those constraints that you're talking about? You know, like the the way you see it is like I, I like the framing around like optimization. So in the context of both like transhumanism as well as like when we talk about the network state, what are the constraints in your mind are like, okay, if we within this local maxima, if we operate, this is the optimal outcome. What is that for both of these? Well, for transhumanism, the constraint is human biology human yeah. cognition you know like what's funny is human nature doesn't change but but robot nature does 
you know, like robots have right. gotten much, much more sophisticated. I mean, like the Dolly and so on. That's actually yeah. really changing very quickly. And so the thing is that, you know, uh, th this axis of transhumanism versus anarcho-primitivism, anarcho-primitivism is like the Unabomber ideology, right? Degrowth, mm. blow up everything, mm -hmm. you know, go back to basically some idealized Eden. And this is very appealing to people because, you know, like we were hunter-gatherers for most of our existence, you know, on the planet, our, you know, and it's only, we've only been farmers as humans for last whatever thousand years, you know? Mm -hmm. And so like millennia of evolution have, if you ask somebody on the, on the, just from anywhere on the earth to draw a scene of, of the outside or, or just, or just, just a scene, I, I've seen this cited. I'm not sure if it's been replicated, but I've seen it cited that they will draw usually one of two scenes, either A, like where they grew up in adolescence. Okay. Mm -hmm. Something like that, like that, right. Or B, it'll be like a, a lake and then some like grass along the side and then like some trees behind it. Okay. And maybe the, <laughs> the people savannah. Watch, huh? The savannah. Like, yeah. Not, not exactly the full savannah, but it's savannah with like some water, some fresh water. Okay. Right. Because right. that's like this sort of ancestral environment. And many different cultures have something that sounds a lot like Eden and the flood. And so, and so you wonder if there's just like a, you know, if you if you put down a beaver, they can build a dam, right? You put down a mm -hmm. bird, they can build a nest, okay? Mm -hmm. Put down a spider, they can build a web. In a sense, there's some fairly sophisticated memory encoded into that ACGT, right? Like literally, you can have mutations in spiders where they mess up the spider web and so on, okay? So in the same way, there's probably some kind of ancestral memory that we've got. How it's encoded, don't know, okay? Mm -hmm. Where we're sort of optimized for like a certain kind of hunter-gatherer-ish thing, many of the genes, but that's like incompatible with modern times, yet we have a yearning for it, right? Mm -hmm. So one way of reconciling that, I think, is the digital nomad type of thing, which I think becomes more and more feasible for a larger percentage of folks where you just move around all the time. Like Vitalik is like a, you know, basically peripatetic digital nomad. Right now mm -hmm. it's expensive to do so, but I think that comes down in cost. I think eventually it flips and becoming a digital nomad is actually cheaper because... Mm -hmm. You know, if you have crypto, you just yeah. rent everywhere and prices have crashed. And by being globally mobile, you actually get the best income for your life standard or your, for your skills at any time and so on and so forth. And now yeah. you have kind of the, the, the human desire of being able to roam and, mm -hmm. and move, right? And that, of course, competes against the other human desire to be like patriotic and loyal and steadfast and I love the land and so on and so forth, right? Those are, those are two tensions, like a yin and a yang, right? Yeah. And uh, so the thing is that the anarcho-primitivists visualize this Eden. I think they're unrealistic because they don't understand that you can't have 7 billion people foraging. <laughs> yeah. You know? The I, I would not, uh, yeah, I would not last without DoorDash. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, but the thing is, you just without like quote industrialized agriculture and so on, without the you know the green revolution, you just don't have enough food to feed like one, right. you know, like like any of the people. You cannot you cannot have people go and farage, and yeah. you just defoliate the 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 forest in like a day or something like that. It'd be the craziest thing in the world, right? So, yeah. so the thing, anyway. Point point being that that axis of transhumanism versus anarchopermanism is basically technology goes to infinity and we touch the stars and become 2.0 or reject it all entirely and go to zero. And there's an intermediate as well. There's always a synthesis. And, you know, I was just talking about this, but basically 
that doesn't mean you always have to floor technology to infinity. Like San Francisco, for example, I, you know, I believe in the internal combustion engine and I believe in the car and whatnot as a useful device. But San Francisco built this elevated highway that blocked the ocean. And disassembling that was good. Like, so you don't need to use tech on every single thing to the absolute max at all times. That's not actually what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But there's like a, a, a good version of it, which is basically saying generally we should move forward and ascend and so on. And we will make wrong turns, but we should continue that. And not in the naive, progressive way of everything always gets better all the time, but in the determined way of, you know, like the Hilbert slogan, you know, Hilbert slogan, we must know, we will know, right? Uh, yeah. No, no, don't know. no. Yeah. Um, well, he, you know, of course, and someone, someone will basically be like, oh, but, you know, Gerdell and completeness showed that we can't know everything and so it's like, okay, sure, but we can know it to a pretty good approximation and we can at least know that we don't know and, and whatnot, right? Like, you know, there's, again, so, so I want to kind of mudge, I, I, I want to merge some of these threads together, Please, right? Yeah. So, you know, transhumanism, you know, I think you made this point about being wanting to be a nomad, which I think is kind of a good segue into your book. So, you know, I, I think, you know, everyone could go check out the book. I love it's free, you know, I love the updating nature of it. I also love how you structured it. There is a, you know, if I, one word, one line, the, the, <laughs> yeah. the one paragraph, a thousand words, then there's a book, there's a chapter at the end. And maybe, you know, Balaji, could you just tell us like the network state in one sentence? Because I think it's kind of a good jumping point to get into the book itself. Sure. So a highly aligned online community with the capacity for collective action that crowdfunds territory around the world and eventually gains diplomatic recognition from pre-existing states. So that combines kind of like four concepts, right? So highly aligned online community that is not, see when it just, it's useful sometimes to define some, what something is by what it is not, right? Facebook is not a highly aligned online community. It is for three something billion people that have nothing in common other than clicking the button in the blue app. Mm -hmm. So Facebook is not a network state, right? Neither is Bitcoin. Bitcoin is, is people who hold, you know, the, you know, BTC, but that's the only thing they have. They're not like highly aligned. You know, there's, yeah. they just have hundreds of millions of people. They, they, in fact, the whole point of Bitcoin is quote decentralized and so on and so forth, right? So, and then a company is not really the same as community. One of uh, a company is one of the institutions which is allowed to have a membrane boundary around and allowed to be selective. Mm -hmm. And because it is allowed to be selective, it is actually where people have sort of rebuilt to some degree community, you know, mm -hmm over the last, you know, 10, 20 years, okay? Mm -hmm. But a company is not the same as a community. Uh, by the way, as distinct from, let's say, an apartment complex, which just has a thousand people that don't know each other in there and can't select mm -hmm. on the basis of communities, and yet as distinct from, let's say, Harvard or any college, which is an apartment complex that can select on the basis mm -hmm. of alignment and identity, right? Highly aligned online community, number one with a capacity for collective action, right? So now you might have a bunch of people who like believe in the same things. You select them on the moral basis of, you know, whether it's carbs bad or, you know, being well-dressed good or FDA bad, you have some premise like that. And the reason I say it in this sort of guttural, visceral way as X bad, Y good, is to sort of mirror how it works within our heads. You could say it in, in the sense of the Food and Drug Administration is, you know, deleterious, right? But like <laughs> X bad, Y good is sort of how, like it's at that basal level, right? And you, you can back, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, it's polarizing Sorry. in an important way, which is you're saying society has a deficiency that you are correcting with your society yep. in the same way that if a startup company is correcting that moral, if a startup company is correcting a market deficiency with a technological innovation, a startup society is correcting a moral deficiency 
with a societal mm-hmm. innovation. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's, so now that thing about capacity for collective action, you have this community, it has to actually be able to do things together. Now you've heard the term state capacity. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So the thing is, everybody just assumes the U.S. government can do something. It basically can't. It, anytime it wants to do X, then the other team doesn't want it to do Y for good reason. And then even when both teams get it together, it does bad things because it can only do popular things and not the unpopular things that are important things, you know? So, now, by the way, one interesting point I think you made recently, I think this might be in the Barry Weiss essay that you wrote, mm-hmm. is that this lack of state capacity... Actually, so let me take a step back. I think some people might think about some of your writings and kind of define it as either anti-left or right. But I think one of the points on you made on state capacity is actually it's almost like a bipartisan, bipartisan thing, thing. where, mm-hmm. you know, where, you know, the U.S. government and we, I, I'm not sure we'll be able to agree, but your assertion is that the lack of state capacity or degradation is something which in some ways both sides, Red Team Red and Team Blue, seem to be winding, winding up to push for. Oh, yeah. Well, the thing about it is, you, you know, the normal concept of like, uh, have you ever seen the political compass? Okay. So, you know, normally people talk about like horseshoe theory, right? And yep. the the thing about that is... So very quickly, horseshoe theory is the idea that the extremes of both the left and the right actually wind up merging, merging. right? But we, but we'll, we, let's focus here on yes. the political that's, compass. That's right. So, so normally people say, oh, you know, communists and fascists become the same thing. They become tyrannical, right? And, or mm-hmm. tyrannical. And, you know, there's this great, you know, film called The Soviet Story, which actually shows, if I recall correctly, a bunch of Nazi and Soviet posters during the same time period. And they look very, very similar. It's like, you're like it's almost like these guys are copying each other. You can almost see, you know, oh, they're doing this propaganda. We'll do it with a slightly different slogan, right? By the way, I think the a horseshoe theory is something which is actually super interesting because there's this great study about how online advertisers on both sides, you know, some of the edges of both sides actually are the similar. Yeah. For example, you kind of it's see this... Like- and I think there was a, there was a study once that the Goop and Alex okay. Jones, you know, actually shared yeah, advertisers at one time. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, they basically it was the same thing. And like, you know, Goop advertised it as like kind of thing. Yeah, no, it was it, it basically was like female coded and male coded. It was like raw gorilla energy or whatever was the Alex Jones version and the you know the the Gwyneth Paltrow version was like goddess mindset or something. I don't know something yeah, something like yeah, that. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so coming back here, so. If top left is communist, top right is Nazi, bottom left woke, bottom right maximalist. That's how I kind of think about it. Okay. And so the top left and top right, they meet in tyranny. Okay. Mm -hmm. But the bottom left and the bottom right meet in anarchy. And so you can actually think of it not as just a horseshoe, but actually as like a figure eight. Interesting. Because what, what does the woke say? The woke says everyone is equal. We are all equal. And the maximalist says, you ain't the boss of me. And both of those, what do they have in common? No hierarchy, yep. right? No order is legitimate. Everything is flat. Destroy all existing structures. Mm-hmm. And, and I understand where that comes from, honestly. I do. Like, I do understand where that comes from. However, that's also a recipe for anarchy, anarchy. which is, yep. you know, which is not good. And then on the other, you know, it's in the, so I have this figure in the book. By the way, I love how dynamic and online your book is. There are graphs. It keeps getting updated. Oh, just wait. I've got so much more. All the embed stuff. Basically, I had to do a bunch of stuff, which was like Kindle only. But like, I've got all kinds of little code snippets and stuff like that coming. So So you the reason I kind of set up this triangle in this way is it actually maps exactly (laughs) to the political compass. Okay. 
NYT, woke, lower left. BTC, maximalist, lower right. CCP, it's like communist, communist. nationalist, right? They're, they're basically the, you know, they're, they're ultra-nationalist communists. They're the, they're the top middle. There's pure authoritarian, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And this is actually, see, the thing is, many people get today's, like, set up wrong like people you know the nyt is and, and the antifa and antifa and stuff like that in the lower left corner are constantly denouncing this ghost opponent in the top right of the nazis which isn't really there and then uh, increasingly you'll see folks on the right who are talking about the communists mm-hmm. you know and they'll, they'll say like i'm a communist disrespecter and so on in the top left and they will identify of course of course the ccp calls themselves communist and the nyt is publishing articles that are sympathetic to communism, but the NYT, you know, they're actually really wokes and the CCP, even though they call themselves communists are really at least half communist. Okay. And so when you, when you see this basically, so this is one way of thinking about it. Another way of thinking about it is the bottom left and top middle are centralized and the bottom right centralized, right? So you have the US establishment centralized, you have the Chinese establishment, they're centralized and you have BTC, which is decentralized. Okay, so you can do a lot of algebra with this kind of thing and just kind of think of these factions. They're almost like magnetic poles or electrical charges, like gravitational things that pull things in different directions. So the the common message of, you know, bottom left and bottom right, I mean, those two are just going to go right at each other. One of the things about this, by the way, is each of these different symbols is a source of truth for like probably about a billion people. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I was just thinking that this diagram is probably going to get my channel banned from YouTube at some oh. point in time, right? <laughs> it's possible. I feel like it's... we'll just put away a hard drive with this video because it's never going to exist anywhere online. No, I want to, actually, I want to get to, you know, Vitalik, you know, wrote a long review a slash... mini book on your book. Yeah, you know, on your book yet last night. And, you know, I think he kind of had two questions or commentary which I want to get to. Sure. So I think one of the things you talk about as necessary for a network state is a need for a founder, like yes. a founding figure of sorts. And I think, so why is that? Why does it need a singular person you know, for this to exist? Good question. So, and I actually have some thoughts on like exit to community and, and whatnot that Vitalik talked about, right? So I, I, I kind of think, you know, from our experience in tech and just your, you know, anybody who's even done like a school project of any kind, you basically, you know, if you give something to N people, it just doesn't get done. If you give something to one person, it might get done, has a chance of getting done. And, you know, there's a thousand essays on the need for leadership and and CEOs. And, you know, Ben talks about like how two CEOs are bad. And, and so it's like, if you build a human organization of any scale, you will see the need for leadership and a decision maker, a conflict resolver, an arbitrator of some kind, right? On the other hand, not only, you know, even though humans need leadership to get something done, humans also often don't like leadership because leadership can veto them or do something to them, et cetera. So the counter to that is, oh, I want to say in this thing because, you know, it has power over me and so on. And I actually, I'm sympathetic to that as well. And, you know, what Vitalik talks about, so the short answer is why do you need a founder? You basically need a leader to get something done, to get something started. Ethereum had a founder, Bitcoin had a founder, yep. pretty much anything we can think of basically had that, right? Okay. But there's the other aspect, which is, does the founder have to carry the burden forever? What if, you know, at first nobody cares about it, but then everybody cares about it if it's successful. If everybody cares about it, don't think you get a stake in it. And so I think, so what Vitalik proposed and what people have talked about is, quote, exit to community. 
And this is a little bit like, you know, a long, wary tech founder being able to finally sell their company and do something else, right? This this actually does benefit the founder sometimes. And the community seems, seems like they can get a piece of it and now maintain it and so on and so forth. And now you go to a more bureaucratic maintenance structure or what have you. And in some ways, I actually think this is the this is okay, but it's like the maturity to death phase of the organism because it's no longer able to really do something unpopular and innovate. It is just basically executing on the scripts it already had. Innovation requires unpopular thought. It requires this kind of, you know, founder kind of person who will is a is not a joiner, but a lever. You know, the founder leaves and does something new, right? Whereas all the people towards the end in the bureaucratic thing are the ones who want to run a large organization, which is very different than starting a small one, right? Yeah. And so exit to community has, you know, there's a, there's negative in terms of bureaucracy, there's a positive in terms of allowing the founder to get, uh, you know, get something out or not just money, but really just get their time back. And there's also, in theory, a, a, a positive for the community because they they now have some slice of control and so on and so forth. However, I actually think that exit to world is much better than exit to community. What does that what, mean? What does that mean? So that means fully open sourcing it. So okay. with a the founder, there was one leader. Exit to community, you've now got a bureaucracy of N leaders. Mm-hmm. And when you exit to world, you fully open source it. You make it public domain. Anybody can fork it and do whatever they want with it. And now it is something which you've made it public domain, right? So rather than giving it to a bureaucracy to run, you give it to the world to build on. You open source it, right? But do you it, not have the same problem as you initially talked about, which is like you need a founder, you need like a... You do, but that founder is now, now you've got something which is free to everybody and everybody can add value on top of it. It's become so valuable, people want to build on it. Let me give a concrete example. AT&T Unix. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. AT&T Unix was a super valuable thing that one company or a few folks invented. And you know, they, they like proved it out and so on. And then everybody used it so much that it became so valuable that the open source version of it, aka, you know, Linux and BSD is now something we take for granted as free. It's exit to world, right? Yeah. And you can fork it and do whatever you want with it. Right. And if you look at the history of all the Unix forks and whatnot, this is like this thing, which looks like early Christianity or like crypto (laughs) where, where it's important enough that, you know, you have like the major BSD forks and they Right. Root philosophical disagreements on like what a computer is supposed to do and what what you know what the prioritization is. And you can actually generalize this. You think about a lot of stuff when you think about open sourcing something, we have a paradigm for that. You think about putting something in the public domain, we have a paradigm for that. It's like, okay, I give up all further control. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think full control works, founder control works. And I think exit to world works. I am mostly skeptical about exit to community in in the sense that. I think it's okay, right? But I, I, I think in general, if you're doing that as a founder, I understand why it benefits a founder, you know, to have like a like a sale of some kind, that's okay. I understand why they want to have a bureaucratic group running it and so on. But from an ethical standpoint, eventually you want to get to exit to world, in my view, right? So because Vitalik in that post is talking more about the ethics of it than the practical aspects, that's what right. I would say is like, you know, there's kind yeah. of something that's even, even more than that. Go ahead. Yeah. So I think the other pushback from Vitalik, and I think we've discussed this a few times also, is, um, you know, one way to, I think, read the very core thesis of your book is you basically have, you know, all these countries and you're kind of populating them from the cloud, you know, but one, you know, assertion could be that you are still dependent on the geopolitics, 
the infrastructure of the countries that you live in. And for, you? for example, you know, if you're living, you know, anywhere near Russia, right, you know, and, you know, at some point in time, you know, Russia might come in and, you know, roll some tanks over the border and try and do something bad to you. Or if you're living anywhere near, say, China, you're under the Chinese sphere of influence. So how do you think about, I would say, can you, for example, when you fork a version of Unix, you know, it's not like the other Unixes can then like send an army after you and throw you in jail. But in this case, when you're having a network state, you are still living in a physical piece of land, mm -hmm. which has, you know, ah. scary people with guns and no, tanks. No, 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 wait, wait, wait. So I want to I contest one key point there. Okay. You're not living in a physical piece of land. You're living in a potential, a set of them. So basically this shows like what a million person network state would look like. Okay. And so the concept is you actually have, so the key difference with all the pre, so you remember how my thing about the V3, how the V3 yep. has aspect, right? So city state, nation state, network state. Okay. City states were the V1. They were located in a physical location. Because they were in a single physical location, they could be invaded. And they were. And in fact, that's why nation states as we know them exist. They're these giant roll-ups, as we put mm -hmm. it in tech, you know, like mm -hmm. a consolidation, a merger, an acquisition, yeah. an invasion, whatever, of lots and lots of little principalities into like these giant entities, right? And that's, you know, that's Garibaldi, and that's Bismarck, and that's, you know, the French Revolution, and that's you know, the unification of India and this unification of China and so on and so forth. You know, it's like the, you know, all these great empires have this like unifying figure that like pulled all the territory together and knitted it together and so on. Right. And, you know, we have things like, you know, San Marino, for example, mm -hmm. is in the United Nations, but it's like a duckbill platypus. It's like this missing link, which Garibaldi spared when he was reunifying Italy. What was San Marino? San Marino is, it's like a 30,000 person tiny thing in the middle of what we think of as Italy that's like a piece of the past that's yeah. like made all the way into the future. It's like, a, it's like a living dinosaur, okay? It's like shows what city-states used to be. And it illustrates the point that you were making, which is that small thing, if Italy wanted to, it could easily invade it, mm -hmm. right? And in fact, this was the ultimatum as the big union got bigger and bigger, it would have more leverage on the small ones and it's basically like join or die. A different version of Ben mm -hmm. Franklin's thing of join or die, this is like join mm -hmm. or, you know, we will invade you, right? This was actually also the argument that India used that, you know, to reunify. Do you know about the princely states? Yep, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, many non-Indians don't know about that. You want to talk about that? Well, I think what Balaji is talking about is, you know, like India achieved independence from the British in 1947. But post that era, you know, and I think Sardar Vallabhai Patel, who's kind of a, a famous Indian states person, was kind of really key to this effort. Yeah. yeah brought together a bunch of these states were essentially ruled by kingdoms. small kingdoms, which had these kind of traditional kings ruling it. And, you know, and the various ones which kind of had like various dynamics around it, but ultimately brought it all under what we consider as India today, right? And some of them have some legacy things, you know, but they and, kind of... And the boundaries of state yeah. and having like a central government. And yeah, but they all lost sovereignty and they all became part of like what we think of as uh, yeah. the Indian state today. But yeah, go on. That's right, that's right. And so the thing is that that unification process on India, and actually something sort of similar on China with much more violent and nasty. So in many ways, where we're headed for is like a decentralized West and a centralized East. Mm -hmm. India and China are in their centralization arc, and the West is in its decentralization and fragmentation arc. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, it's sort of like civilizations have like a heartbeat and a life cycle and an ebb and flow. Yep. And 
so on and so forth, right? And India is for the first time like a unified country in a way that it really was never, it was a civilization, but it was never a, a single like, you know, yeah. Like like thing. So let, right? let me ask you about yeah. this then, because I think this is a good segue to this, which is you obviously been spending a lot of time thinking about India and talking about India and Indians separately, and you sometimes make a decision. Yeah. Give us your view about India and Indians sitting here in July 2022. Okay. So it's possible, by the way, that there's some issue like Sri Lanka or something like that, where there's some financial issue with the Indian state that messes it up. So I want to caveat, you know, that it's, you know, it is possible that there's something like the 1991 economic, you know, crisis that hopefully yeah. if it does happen results in economic liberalization. And I think that's probably, you know, that, that's a, that's a possibility, not a, not a, not a hundred percent, but in general, the way I think about it is I'm very moderately bullish on India, but very extremely bullish on Indians. So it's almost opposite of China in the sense of, you know, China is mainly the Chinese state, and then it also has the Chinese diaspora around the world, right? You think of China, you think about the Chinese state. We think about India, I think you think about the Indian network, right? If you go back to my like God state network kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, and then if you extend it out 10 or 20 years, and of course it's a projection, but we'll see. I have a feeling that, you know, for what, what China's doing is creating like the all seeing AI God, like so, something that truly knows if you be naughty or nice, a, a combination of Santa Claus and, you know, like, the, like, like Sauron, right? And wow. that's a good that's line. A great, I that's actually a, uh, that's a connection there between Santa Claus and Sauron, which I never thought about before. But yes, yes. All right? seeing. All seeing duh, like this, right? And of course, the thing is that in the West, all the sticks are shown, but there's actually also carrots within China. Like the higher your social credit, you know, the more you get on buses. It's basically like, being in good stature with the, you know, the establishment, you know, America also has a social credit score, just, you know, cancellation is decentralized, you know, social credit, right? You hadn't thought of that? Wow. Okay. Never thought about it that way. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, basically, actually, uh, one of the points I make in the book is actually, there's many parallels, many convergences, just like the Nazis and Soviets converged, right? In many ways, the Wokes and the CCP converge on key things. There's cancel culture and human flesh mobs. There's surveillance of the internet. There is state control of giant tech companies. There is a deplatforming censorship and unpersoning of regime critics. There is, you know, this bellicose buildup of militarization. There's actually, unfortunately, a lot of commonalities. Of course, there's differences. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, the Chinese are ethno-nationalists, like for the Han, and the wokes are ethno-masochist, which is like white people are the worst, right? So Chinese people are the best and white people are the worst. That's essentially, you know, white people go to the back of the line for vaccines officially in America, right? That's like state policy, you know? And, you know, that's like rather than either of these sort of like racialist extremes, crypto, Web3 pseudonymity is like a third way, right? Where people yeah. are judged universally on the basis of their merit, Maybe. neither discrimination nor cancellation. And it's globally fair and uniform. And actually, many Americans and many Chinese would also actually prefer that rather than ultranationalism or, you know, ultra wokeness, you know, mm -hmm. just like, mm -hmm. you know, basically rule of law and, you know, not focusing on these ineradicable characteristics. Right. Yeah. So. So what, what how do I think about it? If China is the Chinese state and they're leaning into AI, India is really going to be about, I think, the decentralized network, you know, Sinic centralization and Dharmic decentralization, you know. Um, wait, 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 hold wait, on. Wait, wait, oh, wait. What? Slow wait. down and say that again. 
S-I-N-I-C, Sinic Centralization, Dharmic Decentralization. You know? So okay. like one Babaji, you in yeah. another timeline, you have a career as a rapper, like dropping bars because <laughs> your ability to <laughs> rhyme things which make sense is unparalleled. All right. So the, the thing is, are like amazing. They're just great. I, I appreciate that. So the, the, the thing is that many, you know, Westerners are sort of used to like essentially an Abrahamic world. You know, Judeo-Christian yes. and so on. And you know, look, I, I, there's, I think there's a lot, obviously, that these cultures have contributed to the world and so on. Have you ever seen the graph of like the geocenter of the world economy? I don't think so. No. So this is, you know, of course, the estimates of like what GDP was in, in 1,000 or 1,500 or 1,820. Those are all approximations. But the fact that Columbus wanted to get to India, you know, the fact that those trade routes, like we can see, okay, the, the, there was, there clearly was something going on there. Right? Why would he? He wouldn't want to get somewhere unless there was actually trade or you know money to be made. Right? So the thing is that you know the entire post-war era is set up when GDP is basically you see where it's 1940, 50, 60, 70, 80, yeah. 90. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That entire period. That's where all these institutions are set up. That's what everybody thinks is constant. Yeah. But the entire Abrahamic world, you know, is yielding now a lot of its energy. And this is actually a kind of an older graph. It's moved mm -hmm. dramatically already to the the uh, you know these other two gigantic cultures, the Dharmic and the Sinic, which mm -hmm. have sort of different value systems, right? And it goes like I mean, you can go on about this forever. So here, let me give kind of like you know one version of it, and you know people will probably shoot at me or whatever on this. Okay, so. So the, this this video is definitely not. Yeah, it's not only on YouTube at this rate, right? Like sure. we're definitely getting canceled. Fine. So so right. So let's let's take you know the Abrahamic model of you know you behave you have sins or you do good things in one life and then you either go to heaven or go to hell. It's like one shot deal, right? Infinite or zero, right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's one way. By the way, if you believe that, it's one way of stabilizing society. Because mm -hmm. the Pascal's wager thing, even though it's you know mocked or attacked or whatever, if you actually get people to believe it, it's like decentralized law enforcement. Why? If sure. people believe that they're actually going to hell if they do something wrong, then it's kind of like, okay, God is always watching, so I better be a God-fearing man and, and so on and so forth. Okay. And so, you know, you can, like, basically, if, given that assumption, that software in people's heads, if they genuinely believe in hellfire and brimstone and whatnot, they will behave in a certain way, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, then there's the dharmic model, which is you have dharma and you have karma. And if you do your duty, you gain karma. And if you don't, you lose karma. And in the next life, you're born to a higher status or lower status based on that. And that's like the iterated game model. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you can argue with this, of course. I'm just saying this how historically it was justified. And that that's something where it's not a one-shot deal. It's a multiple-shot deal. Okay. And then you have the Sinic model which is that, you know, you have, it's often ancestor worship. It's, so it's like mm -hmm. rear wheel drive. It's like looking rearward, right? And it's basically saying, you know, like uh, respect what our ancestors, and that's the way that they, that that's a way of preserving the order by saying, make the ancestor proud, filial piety, you know, make, make my family proud and so on and so forth. And you preserve the order going in reverse, right? So, mm -hmm. You know, that's just like, you know, obviously there's pieces of that that have made it to the modern day. There's pieces of that that have been thrown away or what have you. But that just kind of gives like, 
three yeah. different sort of broad mental yeah. picture. Yeah. Okay. Hold on. Sure. Gonna, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. I still want to talk about like why are you then bullish on Indi- Indians? Oh, why? Well, the thing is, I think look, there's about five million Indians, and you probably add you know the broader South Asian set as well, but. About 5 million Indians have made it to the US, UK, Canada, Australia, and I've done quite well. I mean, really well. You're talking mm-hmm. Satya, you're talking Sundar, you're talking, you know, Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft, Sundar Pichai, CEO of Google, and, you know, many other really legit tech CEOs and founders like Shantanu Narayanan of, of uh, Adobe and, and you, know, you know, Twitter CEO, all, all, you know, Parag, all these people, and in politics. You have, you know, Kamala Harris, obviously a VP. You have who's half, but still, it's you know, you have. I'm not saying it's half credit, but I'm just saying, like, you know, people. Yeah, there's, people there's, this whole, there's this whole meme about, you know, you either kind of about how you become like an Indian founder, become CEO, or somebody becomes Indian CEO. But sorry, so going back, so why? Sure, are sure, sure. Like, Wait, but, Indian but also, well, yeah. So as I'm coming to, so yeah, Indians have done quite well recently in politics, in media, in entertainment, in finance, in law. You have Rishi Sunak, you know, and and Preeti Patel in the UK. You have the Tausich of Ireland is of Indian uh, descent, if I recall correctly, a while back. I think he's now no longer there, but he was Leo Varadkar, right? Was the Indian or half Indian? My my dad, like you know, like some other Indian parents back in the day, you know, he would look at anybody and he'd be like, the first thing when some somebody becomes CEO, one Indian person, all of us get a WhatsApp message from our parents <laughs> saying, like, did you just see that this person became CEO? It, it's both the sense of pride and also the sense of like, so what? I, what are you? What have you done? Yeah. yeah, actually, yeah, I know. Why are you not? So okay, so a lot of Indians <laughs> have become very successful but, in in the West. But right? here's the thing. Here's the thing. That's the advanced scouts, right? That is actually the leading edge of what is to come, okay? Because, you know, my friend Akshay has this great one-liner. This is not mine. I credit to Akshay, Akshay of, of Super Team, actually. Mm-hmm. Akshay Bidi, who is definitely Akshay. worth following, yes. Great guy, yeah. So he has this line, which is, uh, Indians no longer need the H-1B visa, they have the TCPIP visa. <laughs> okay? So... <laughs> Even as like immigration is getting locked or whatever, you know, and harder to get in some ways, kind of doesn't matter because so much work has moved online. So much work is remote. Cryptocurrency is there that I think over the next, I mean, outsourcing has not begun. Okay. Like it has not begun. Like just like, you know, the internet has not begun in some ways. Like the true Mm -hmm. impact of what global free markets mean, global free speech means, the true impact of that, among other things, like, you know, over the last five years, the American press has very much turned inward. With the exception of Ukraine, you almost never hear about anything happening outside. It's always some stupid domestic political battle and so on and so forth, right? So most people don't know that about a billion Indians have gotten online over the last five years, not just online, but on, you know, LTE, like I think 4G or 5G LTE and some of the cheapest service in the world. So they can mm-hmm. see like high bandwidth, defi- you know, high, high definition movies in like rural India. And By so, the way, I think this is really profound because when I go to India these days, like there was a time when I think in the mid to the early 2000s when, when we were in the US, you the, the tech, kind of the state of the internet, the state of payments, you know, was generally ahead in the US. But these days, when I go to India, like in way ahead, yeah, you're going to see like for example, run people on the street watching broadcasts at like full fidelity payments, you know, contactless payments were like in India a lot before. This so so they're so ahead in so many capabilities and what mm-hmm. we experience in the US today. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, the thing is that they also didn't have the existing infrastructure to compete with it. And so, you know, it's something where you just 
just go directly to to that level. You, you could skip the desktop PC yeah. and go straight so to the yeah, yeah. yeah. What happened leapfrog. to like, a lot of our relatives and stuff? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yep. So, so now here we go. So basically, what is totally underpriced? What I don't think anybody is actually thinking about. I should mm-hmm. say anybody, but like, yes, there's a ten or twelve hour time zone difference, but those billion something Indians have been lurking and like acculturating themselves and learning like American memes and Western memes. And when they type, they type with a Western accent. They may speak with a Indian accent, but they type with a Western accent. That's new. They don't, they don't say, can you do the needful and, you know, so on and so forth, right? Like, you know, nothing wrong with that, but that, you know, they, they are now much more acculturated. Okay. And what that means is that, you know, the previous generation had to have technical skills of engineering or medicine to move mm-hmm. across borders. Mm-hmm. But now lots of quote soft skills, you know, that's and why like culture, the, like assimilation of culture. Yeah, exactly. Like the 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 sort of canonical Indian position in tech is CTO. It's like mm-hmm. actually if you look, it's like even more than C- CEO. CTO is like like Substack is an Indian CTO and Clubhouse is an Indian CTO. That's like just the go-to kind of thing, like the Indian CTO, mm-hmm. right? I think even like Silicon Valley, HBO, whatever, it's like it's like almost a caricature. Whatever. So, so that's because technical skills are portable. But now the cultural yeah. skills are getting there really fast. And you have a generation of, you know, high school students that has just spent four years in the school of the internet. And every single verbal job that's done in the West can now be done in India. Like, so like hmm. verbal outsourcing hasn't even begun. Okay. Hmm. So like- Brooklyn's Brooklyn's wokest, all the blue checks are going to sound like blue collars. I'm actually much more sympathetic to the blue collars. The blue collars saw all their jobs going to China. But lots of blue checks are going to see massive competition from India. And mm. many of them are going to actually become like openly racist as a consequence, I believe. And like it'll be something that'll be a big thing over the next five or ten years. Whereas others will like embrace this. And I, I, like the entry of Indians into the English internet in a massive way mm-hmm. is just completely unpriced on every dimension. Yeah. One way of thinking about it actually is the phone is a new franchise. Like, you know, the extension of the franchise to like women and minorities and so on over the 20th century is this thing that's been written about so much. Mm-hmm. But billions of smartphones give all of these previously mostly voiceless Indians mm-hmm. a say on the global stage. India is locked out of the UN Security Council. Right, France has a seat on the Security Council. Right, India doesn't have a seat at the IMF. Okay, mm-hmm. but the Indian network is going to roar. So I want to ask you this: A lot of people who want to watch this will be Indians. So if you are a twenty-year-old Indian watching this on YouTube, what advice do you, Balaji, have for him or her? So if you are of a technical mindset. Learn computer science and statistics. Okay. Why those two? Because that's upstream of programming and data science. And, and that allows you to operate in any field. Okay. You can go into airlines and airlines, you know, they have data structures on flights and passengers mm-hmm. and so on. And they have algorithms that process those and they'll collect data. And then you'll analyze that with stats, right? You could go into a totally different space. You could go into, gosh, retail or something like that. Okay. And yeah. you're going to have SKUs like shopping cart, you know, numbers and or stock stock keeping Basically, units, right? That's your fungible set of skills or jobs that you can go like parlay right. your skills into. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Because every area now has algorithms and has data structures. So it needs computer science and needs statistics. This mm-hmm. is the skill set 
that is to our period what physics was to the early 20th century. Like the physicists could go in to all of these previously sort of phenomenological organizations, like kick in the door and mm -hmm. like write down some basic equations and systematize it, you know? You know, Luria and Delbrook famously did this with biology. They just counted things where people hadn't counted before. And then that kind of all changed with disciplinary fragmentation the second half of the 20th century. But now yeah. it's kind of come back. And because much of the much of our life, right, much of what we're doing is looking at screens all the time. Right? Yeah. How much of your life is spent looking at a screen, Sri Ram? What percentage of waking hours? No comment, right? But some topics it, we will not discuss. Some topics we will not discuss. Okay. So but for many people, it's like more than 50% of their waking hours are spent looking at a screen. So okay. while I believe in physics, while I do think you should know physics and chemistry and biology, that's still important. I, you know, all the transhuman stuff requires that. More and more of human experience will be within digitally constructed worlds. And those worlds are, you know, the metaverse stuff, the AR, so all of that is constructed by computer science and stats, right? So on the technically inclined side, that's what I'd say. Okay. If you're on the verbally or artistically inclined side, you're a word still, not a shape rotator. Yeah, yeah. Though, of course, you know, you should be both, right? Like you should, you know, develop some talents both, right? <laughs> so what, let me see if I can phrase this the right way. Some people choose when, when they have access to the global internet and they have access to all of these people who are online, like, you know, all these investors and CEOs and, you know, like managers and so on to troll them. Okay, some people choose to do this. Why? Because it gets attention. It I gets did a rise. I think that's where the sentence was going. Yeah, I, 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 I don't. Okay, okay. Why? So some go. people choose to do that. I would advise not doing that, and instead, like, because you know, it's it's almost like you know, like a like a little boy in school likes a girl and punches her, you know, to show that he likes her or something. Like often people will do this. Like Paul Graham has written that sometimes your biggest fans can be your biggest haters or whatever, right? Yeah. So yeah. you know. My point is that if you are of a verbal, you know, bent, rather than trolling people on social media, which will get likes, that's the reason people do it, right? Mm -hmm. Just attacking and being cynical and so on and so forth. Instead, try to figure out, I know this sounds cliche, but it's actually kind of, it's really not. Try to figure out how to add value, okay? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Basically, you know, write content. So you can start by writing even just a simple blog post or something like that. That is, you, you want to break into some field, okay? Or... You want to get the attention of some person, write something that is potentially of value to them. Now, this is very counterintuitive because, you know, if you're young, you might be like, oh, this, this guy is, this person, this investor is super rich. Why do they need any more value? Why am I adding value to them, et cetera? The thing is that that quote rich guy has a hundred or a thousand people asking them for money on like a daily basis constantly, right? Mm -hmm. So like, okay, another, I mean, of course it's a job or whatever, but it's like, if they said yes to everybody, they would have no money, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So. The person who has something in their inbox saying, oh, here's a graph of something that I thought you might like, or here's a program I wrote that does X, Y, and Z, or here's, you know, you were talking about India, here's some, you know, new graphs from the economics of India. I'm not saying, by the way, kids who are watching this, don't do this exactly thing to me or whatever, you know, but just as, as a concept, right? Well, you get a bunch of inbound graphs. By the way, I think, yeah. you know, I think <laughs> one of the most valuable things that anybody can give or give another human being is a new model or a framework to look at the world. Yeah. And yeah. if you, I know, and I think if you are that person who, and, but, and Balaji, you know, and I think it has been the originator of more than one for me personally. And if you can actually give somebody a piece of signal or give somebody a framework, you know, a two by two graph or a Wikipedia page, which makes you go, huh, right. That is incredibly, incredibly valuable. 
Yes, I, I agree. And and those new models, they just, they, they shape how you kind of sort and process information, right? That's why, mm-hmm. I, you know, but to return to your point, so for the verbally inclined, that's the first step. But then here's the second step. I mentioned this about 18 months ago, but it's already, I think, really starting to play out. You know how India for a long time, maybe still to some extent, has China envy and like US admiration or US envy, right? Like India would copy China and China would copy the US or whatever. And everyone's kind of behind for like last 20 years, kind of being like that, right? I think now that the US is like much less admirable, China's not copying the US anymore. It's kind of going its own direction. And India actually can also go its own direction in some ways. And one of the things I think is a very important thing for the verbally inclined or artistically inclined in India is to realize that India can, and I think will become a media superpower. Now, when I say this, when I said this 18 months ago, people thought they're like, dude, I like Bollywood, but come on, let's be realistic, right? Like it's not gonna, you know, it's not gonna beat Hollywood or whatever, any types of going, let's be real. And I'm not talking about Bollywood. I, I, Bollywood is fine, but I'm talking about what comes after that, right? So the thing is that this, in the same way that China ascended from making plastic stuff at Walmart to going up the value chain to like assembling iPhones. And now they're doing the entire thing for cutting edge drones and electric cars and, you know, they're competitive and everything, right? And, you know, India has ascended the value chain from, you know, Java body shops doing like, you know, Y2K coding, you know, uh, 12 hours, you know, on an offset to, mm-hmm. you know, software consultancy, Tata type stuff to now actually being number three in tech unicorns in media. The sophistication and acculturation with the West is going to mean the potential for what I think of as a bright sun to the West's black mirror. Mm. Because in- Great line. Mm-hmm. Great line. Well, India is ascending with technology. It's the ascending world. And, mm-hmm. you know, the Brooklyn's wokest are the descending world. And it's not yeah, rich for... What's a good example of that? Like when you say ascension in the context of media in India, what does that mean? So, you know, I have an example here. I think like, you know, I'm not, Balaji said not Bollywood, but actually, if you look at the last year, there yeah, have been R- these huge... RRR and... I was going to say RRR. Right? Yeah. I was like, yeah. RRR, is kind of the, RRR is kind of this huge Indian blockbuster. Mm-hmm. If you're not watched it, go check it out. I think it's on Netflix or any streaming service. And it is this huge hit you know, you know, Hollywood style budgets. And, and it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like how South, South Korea has kind of seen this cultural resurgence with things like Squid Game and Parasite. But India is also seeing this with RR and a bunch of other movies. So I, I was, I, I was that is the example I was going to use. So I'm not saying that, I mean, so first of all, it is, I should be more clear. It's not just Bollywood. Bollywood alone wouldn't get you there. But here's the thing. There's an entire new domain of content creation and it is, Web3 and it's VR and it's AI video. And when you when you combine those, right, you basically have something which plays to the Indian strength of like computer programming and so on, right? Because all mm-hmm. of those are, right? But it's also something where you, you have green field, right? Why did mm-hmm. Indians get to senior roles in software companies? Because there's a new industry, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Vinod Kosla was such a pioneer because... Why, why was he a big dog? Because he founded the company. Guess what? You know, he might not have gotten promoted to such a level, you know, but he could found it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're in, when you're talking, there's not that, that uh, there's not that many times that like totally new content verticals or totally new currencies and so on open up. Web3 and, you know, AI video and AI video editing and metaverse type stuff. Like if you are verbally inclined, you should write scripts for those scenarios, right? 
You should mm. you should write scripts for what comes after Hollywood movies. They're like immersive VR environments. You should start thinking about what comes after Hollywood movies. There are 140 second clips, the things we're already seeing on Twitter and so on. You you would basically build the entire thing such that it's not two hour movies, but 140 second clips. And maybe you monetize them with some crypto thing, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed mm -hmm. to pay to view, right? And the thing about this is if China was a tech and manufacturing superpower, I think India with the Chinese, you know, like the, that, cause you know, it's building things and it's building, you know, tech companies. I think India becomes a tech and media superpower because yeah. it's only okay at manufacturing. It's gotten better at that, but it's, it's actually, I think can, can be world-class in media. And when I mentioned that, just to connect the dots to the previous point, the 5 million Indians abroad, as I mentioned, are the advanced scouts. Okay. Yeah. How many people with that talent level are there back in India? This might be the single most important unknown question in the world right now. Yeah. Right. Okay. I want to take this to a different space. You know, Balaji, when the movie about your life is inevitably made, <laughs> who's, who's the actor who should play you when the movie about you is made? It's all AI. It's me. Great. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I, I think I was prepared you once for that. Okay. So when the, I think when the movie of your life is being was is made, the singular incident which will get talked about is you predicting COVID, right? And for those yeah. of you who don't know, you know, Balaji basically writes this tweet. This is timestamp Jan 30th, 2020. And by the way, one of the amazing things I think I always appreciate about Balaji is everything is timestamp, fact check. You know, you can always link back, check it, and, and you know, whether it's right or wrong. So you write this tweet in Jan, on Jan 30th, 2020, when just trust me, nobody in the United States was paying attention to the coronavirus. I, I don't think the word COVID-19 had even been coined at that point in time. And you write this tweet saying, hey, this thing is going to be a pandemic and it's going to cause, I'm just going to read this out, border closures, nationalism, social isolation, preppers, remote work, face masks, distrust in government. I remember this very well because... It we, sounded... Yeah, I argued with you at that point in time saying, this sounds ridiculous. And, <laughs> and folks, I mean, you have to realize how ridiculous this sounded. And this is the equivalent of like, you know, the Christian Bale character in The Big Shot saying <laughs> that this market is going to collapse. Everyone thinks you're nuts, but then you immediately call it. So what caused you to write this tweet and maybe walk us through what happened? And because in the history of somebody calling it and getting it right, like something, a deep in the money call option, you know, in a way which nobody expects. this is up there. But by the way, if you go back to that tweet for a second and you scroll yeah, down. Yeah, the second one. Yeah, if you just scroll down a little bit, like I, I, I actually explain my reasoning, but even more than that, I give, you know, there's certain things that was, again, you have to warp your head back to that time. But if you scroll down a little bit further, I was talking about how everybody might wear face masks. Yep. Okay. Now today that might seem like that, that seems so obvious, but at the time, you know, the way I, it was very much a prediction. And, you know, if you go back a little bit further, I said when Silicon Valley and China both agree on something, it often happens. Face masks are on the rise due to infection and pollution, privacy is their driver. Every American man used to wear a hat. Perhaps everyone wears a face mask soon. And the thing about this was, you know, that's my friend Jameson Lopp, you know, who had some of the same you know, like some of the pieces, you know, I, I talked about him with him around that time and, you know, remote work, you know, like basically highly contagious virus, you know, hundred, you know, the term social distancing wasn't there, but, and if you go and look at the curves, if another country has a 
Outbreak is bad as China. Some trends may be arrested and reversed, at least in the short run. Tinder would fall, perhaps Uber and Airbnb too, digital nomadism as well. And they both like massively crash anything, right? And then if you go down a little bit further, and this is the vaccine stuff, which wasn't exactly, the fight wasn't, I didn't actually expect, I didn't get everything right because I didn't expect the flip, multiple flippings on this. Because at first the left was, the left and right had certain positions. The left was saying it was racist to talk about the coronavirus and the right was saying China virus and so on. Then they flipped and then the right was like downplaying it. And then Trump like accelerated the vaccine and Kamala Harris said that they don't trust a Trump vaccine. And then after the election, the vaccine was something that everybody, you know, was supposed to take. And, yep. you know, like, so it like flipped like I three or four times. Before that, I, if I remember, you know, when you talked about this, by the way, there's an infamous no handshakes allowed oh blog post and your reaction to that. And but I think when you talk about it, I think there's a sense of racism that talking about this virus was somehow racist. And do you, do you I think that was like the Chinese New Year? Yeah, yeah. There's a call to ban travel people, from China. These people never apologize, by the way, and they never will because they're just completely unethical creatures. But yeah, I mean, there was like the no handshake stuff. There was a Chinese New Year and celebrating it and, you know, having crowds together. There was like a bunch of things. I think for me, like the overall thing is you called it. You called a lot of it. You called like the pandemic. When it was, it sounded completely ridiculous. You just went against the tide. You called remote work, face masks, just distrust in just people getting like the governments getting their shit together to like get the vaccines out the door. And, and just, you know, like every one of these things over the course of like the last two and a half, whatever years, you've basically called it, right? Why? Uh, how? Like how, how? Like what made you think, oh, this is it. Like this is a pandemic and this is kind of what's going to happen. Well, so first, a few things. One is, I think I, I think I did fairly well, but I definitely didn't get everything right. You know, there's certain, as I mentioned, the the flips I didn't get. And I also, the thing I was surprised by, the thing I was most surprised by, honestly, is that the vaccine actually did get out fast. Mm-hmm. That's the thing I was most surprised. Or, or rather, let me put it like this. If you actually go and look at, here was a part, when I was writing, it was during a time of extreme uncertainty. And now in retrospect, the pandemic has quote, only killed on the order of, you know, I think six or seven million people worldwide. Perhaps by the time it's done, yeah. it will be like on the order of 10 million. Okay. Wait, wait, I have two two questions for you, Balaji. Right. One is on Jan 30th, what did you notice that hmm. made you predict this? And the second question is, how did people react, you know, when you told them about this? Okay. Well, what I noticed, so, you know, what I am, if I have a talent, for anything, it is, I find exponentials that I bet on early, and whether that's machine learning or genomics or cryptocurrency or remote or like whatever, all my, you know, startup stuff. And the thing is, it's actually hard because some exponentials will peter out and they don't have legs or whatever, right? And this one was something where I was like, you know, I I threw the kitchen. So first of all, it wasn't like Seeing what was happening in China and how seriously the Chinese government was taking it was a big part of it. The the fact that guys like Li Wen Liang had died from it, you know, who's healthy 30-year-old, you know, 30-something, was, was certainly indicative. And, you know, fundamentally, it's it was something where it was an exponential where I couldn't falsify the dynamics that would lead to its continued growth. I wasn't seeing the U.S. establishment taking it seriously. I wasn't seeing people around, like... If people around you are on it, remember my thing about how in the comment section, you know, look right, 
it, it falls to me. Nobody's right? saying anything. No yeah. one's saying anything. By the way, that tweet was also carefully phrased. And if you notice, it opened with, what if, you know, this is, this is one of the public health folks have been talking about. Why did mm -hmm. I phrase it that way? Because it sort of borrowed the true fact that mm -hmm. some members of the establishment had been talking about this and made, you know, one way of thinking about it, by the way, whenever you include a citation, you're bringing reinforcements. Yeah. Okay. Citations are reinforcements because you're summoning this person and their army of things. So now it's not like, you know, just you, it's like you and a bunch of this and you have a bunch of this and this and this. So it's like summoning, you know, things next to you. Right. Mm -hmm. So citations are reinforcements and this is a heavily cited thread. And actually, if you go down a little bit, so at the time there were 108,000 cases, mostly in China, 171 deaths. And if you go to the next one, like yeah. there, there only been like, you know, that, that was mainland China. The rest of the world, it just hadn't broke out yet. Right. So it's mm -hmm. very early, but, but, but was, I think this is something very profound because what you did is you looked at the graph, which is somebody in the tech venture world, you know, it's usually something good. Right. Like, right. you know, it's, a, it's not something it's good. Not the right. right. But it, the exponential nature of it could be something bad and you extrapolate it out and then called it. I remember that month or two. And, you know, a lot of people were mad at you. Right? Yeah, well, they tried, no, they like, weren't just mad at me. They tried to cancel me and reputation kill me. And in fact, you know, Kara Swisher's recode, which is like, you know, whatever, it, these, these outlets don't even really matter anymore because, you know, what's happened is tech has now kind of declared social independence from them, mm. right? That's actually a really key thing. And what I mean by that is, you know, back in, let me talk, well, okay. I'll talk about that for a second, then come back. Okay. Yep. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. when the Puritans went and they migrated from England to the US or what <laughs> became the US, right? Or North America, they de facto by, by changing geographies, they broke social ties. Okay. And you kind of take that for granted. Normally moving means you break social ties. You've got like a new, you've got a new society. Today though, when you move by default, mm -hmm. you retain social ties. Mm -hmm. You have to affirmatively break social ties in order to get the kind of social independence appeared instead. Therefore, all startup societies have, you know, should start by doing something like blocknyt.com. Have you seen that site? Yes. Okay is a site that will basically block hundreds, thousands of NYT journalists and others, right? All of these employees of, you know, this Oxel, Zuckerberg, and everybody knows all the tech founders and so on, and they have an opinion on them. They can recognize Zuckerberg by his face and so on. Nobody knows who Salzberger is. Do you know, Arthi, do you know who Salzberger is? I haven't talked to you about him. <laughs> uh, yeah, we do. Yes, we do. Okay, okay, fine, fine, fine. So point is, the guy who owns the New York Times is actually like a, you know, he's, he's inherited the company from his father's 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 father. It is yeah. literally this rich white male, rich white cis white male nepotist who lives in a giant mansion and is the caricature of everything they attack the largely Asian and Indian and Persian and, you know, like meritocratic tech industry for is this meritless nepotist, right? And policy, I, I, I have a question. Have right. you ever met Salzburger? No, but uh, basically, if but, you did, but, what yeah. would you say to him? What I'd say to him is, why do you run billboards calling your private property the truth of the world? And 
when will you liquidate your corporation to pay reparations to the Ukrainians for denying the whole Demore? Okay. Like literally this guy, I mean, look, people will get canceled or fired for, you know, some, some random comment. This guy's family fortune was built in part on the compound interest of like genocide denial, right? It's a completely illegitimate organization. And if you read The Great Lady Winked, for example, and I'm serious about this, it's very important. So uh, there's a person, Ashley Rinsberg, who has gone through and just documented how mm-hmm. many different crimes. I mean, people talk about disinformation, you know, like you say, okay, Pizzagate, some guy goes and he might shoot up a, a store or something like that. And one person, you know, may, may be shot. Literally millions of people have died from their disinformation. It's the Iraq war. It's actually the Vietnam war. You know, David Halberstam printed false information that led to the uh, undermining and of the, of the South Vietnamese government. It's Walter Durante and the Hall de Moore, which basically they want a Pulitzer Prize. They've even admitted that it was fake, actually, at the NYT site. If you, you know, th- uh, there's a bunch of references I have in the book on this, but uh, th- there's there's Herbert Matthews, the Cuban Revolution. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. you know, he he ran interference for Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro was like a, a Sam bin Laden. He was like on the run, like a defeated terrorist. And he got like a full page profile in the New York Times. And it was like this sympathetic thing that said he's like a hero and he was photographed. And then what happened? Overthrew, you know, Cuba, turned into a communist hellhole, you know, murdered all these people. And, you know, the the New York Times is basically because they rewrite history, because, you know, they're saying the first draft of history, right? What most people haven't realized is some of the most evil people in history are the historians. By the way, I think the early part of your book, but there's a lot to unpack there. The early part of your book actually has a bunch of examples on this. And I will credit Balaji with, you know, telling me about... So, I mean, you wrote the tweet. I want to come yeah. back to this. Right, sure. Like, what What were your reactions? I think you mentioned a couple things. Like, what What were people like accusing you of? What What paranoia, was it like? exaggeration? You're a racist. Like, yeah, I, I remember the racist one for the Chinese New Year celebration. Yeah, and no. I, thought, by the way, but you know, so, yeah, the Chinese New Year thing. Context on that is in China itself, which is not known for being racist against Chinese people. Okay, like not going that. All right, they, they had at Wuhan had a whole thing where that like the head of the you know the mayor or what have you was disciplined for holding Chinese New Year celebrations in the middle of the pandemic, right. and it was something where a bunch of folks had been flying out from there to you know SF because there's obviously there's tons of traffic back and forth during Chinese New Year. That's a huge thing. And so, like, the thing is that basically the most basic precautions were not taken. It was like, what I realized, see, the thing is, for a long time, I had wondered whether the U.S. establishment, especially the journos, were stupid or evil, right? Like, with stupid, like, you know, the difference is you can have, like, a four-part thing, right? Good is helping others without any concern for yourself. Smart is helping others while also helping yourself. Stupid is or stupid is harming others while harming yourself and evil is harming others while helping yourself okay so mm-hmm. difference is were they evil and actually lying and they knew that they were lying or were they just stupid and with this one i realized they were stupid because self-preservation alone should have made them drop the mm-hmm. stupid tribalist tech media thing and actually be like, okay, let's figure this out as society and is yep. this real and so on and so forth, right? So Balaji, I'll say, I'll say this, you know, obviously for decades to come, there'll be books about COVID, there'll be movies, there'll be, you know, it'll be documented. And I think 
and we don't always agree on everything you and I, but I think you deserve credit for being one of the first to call it and then bang the drum, make a lot of noise, take but, a lot of arrows. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I, what, one of the things I said, though, here's one. Okay, I appreciate that. But the thing is, one of the things I said early on that I just want to make clear, I very much advocated technological solutions, vaccines, drugs, et cetera. And with the lockdown stuff in particular, you know, one of the things I said was, this is extraordinarily costly. And if you're doing it, it needs to be very short. And the focus has to be on technologies. You can't have like indefinite lockdown. And the the thing about that is also that, you know, the one of one of the issues here, I'll show you one thread, because I actually thought this is actually even, you know, more important than that. Like yeah. the basically I knew that this would be used by governments to inhibit civil uh, civil liberties, right? So mm-hmm. uh, because like, you know, even if it was legitimate and we didn't know at that time, and I'm gonna show you a graph also. So sometimes the solution creates the next problem. My rough forecast of the future, the coronavirus results in quarantines, nationalism, and centralization. And this may actually work to stop the spread. But once under control, states will not cede their power so we decentralize. Um, by the way, if there's ever an example of somebody predicting that this is it, I mean, the idea of quarantines on February 3rd, 2020 was unthinkable. And here you are, you know, not really talking about quarantines, but, but what the second and third order consequences. Yeah. Are, right. Can I say something, you know, right. before we move off this topic, looking back now, it's been almost actually over two years now. Do you wish you had done anything differently in terms of trying to get people's attention to the pandemic? No, because here's uh, not really. Uh, here's why the reason is that what i learned was that the u.s establishment has no reserve of competence okay what i mean by that is people had this thought before the pandemic that when things got serious on some floor there were some like hard-nosed g-men who would just like say step aside and organize stuff like in the movies you know like there's some Back a back a plan like the special you know team of the, the you know the folks that, like uh, the special guys for Transformers or or, or 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 Jason Bourne you know guys on some floor who have organizational powers and you know you know that's from the movies yet you sort of want to believe that there's somebody who knows what they're doing okay and what I learned from the pandemic is that you know it's a bipolar America in both senses of the term both bipolar in the sense of two poles, blue and red, but also bipolar in the sense of manic depressive because it's it only have two modes, which are either A, apathy, or B, panic. Hmm. Right? And so when you got attention to it, it was something where first, you know, there was, I remember very clearly someone was like, nothing can be done, we should all die. You know, or basically it's not a big deal, we should just let the coronavirus hit us. Wired published something on that. And then... Or the first one was like, nothing Nothing should be done because nothing will happen. And then nothing can be done, right? But both of them were basically just, you know, kind of stupid apathy things. And then mm-hmm. panic, which is do anything ah, like this. And everybody, you know, running around like a chicken with their head cut off. And a bunch of people yelling on Twitter at ever louder volumes and, and, and so on. And you realize actually there's, you know, there's no coordination point. There was no, there, there's simply no order. It, it was as if you... You know, you dropped a bad financial report in the team Slack and then just told everybody to just yell and freak out or whatever, right? And, you know, that's not going to get you something good. One way of thinking about it is if you, if there's a house, okay, and you tell a thousand people to go and burn down like a house, a hundred people, whatever, they can do it. Why? 
because they don't need to coordinate. Destruction paralyzes. You know, mm-hmm. one guy has a brick, one guy mm-hmm. has this. They don't need to coordinate at all. Destruction is embarrassingly parallel. If you have those hundred people, you tell them to go build a house. That's really hard, right? They need skills. You need to have the contract, you know, the the cement laid in this order and the electricity, you know, the electrical wiring and so on. Building yeah. does not embarrassingly paralyze. Doing something constructive is actually difficult. This is why in the network state concept, the capacity for collective action of this online community is highly non-trivial. Being yep. able to do, right? So the problem is getting attention to something does not result in solving the problem. It just resulted in all these people panicking or whatever, right? So the so I don't, uh, you know, that that's the thing. I think what we should have done, Balaji, yeah. is at the time, you know, you should have been running the CDC or the FDA. So that's the thing is, you know, what the Kobayashi Maru situation is. Oh yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Look, I'm a no one. Look, I'm OG Trekkie Trekker right here. Come on. Yeah, yeah. So the, for those who don't know, the Kobayashi Maru. Actually, why don't you tell them what it is? Well, the Kobayashi Maru is a test taken by one James T. Kirk when he was at Starfleet Academy. It's actually never shown on screen, by the way, in the original series only talked about, but actually then they show it on screen in the recent movies. And the test is actually, you run a simulation, you're a student, and you are in this, essentially this no-win situation where a bunch of Klingon ships show up and you're supposed to realize it's no-win, except our, you know, Captain James T. James Kirk, T. Kirk. Uh, winds up actually hacking the simulation, I, th- I think the night before, and actually passing the test, right? And there's kind of this debate about whether it's okay or not okay. It's kind of one of the... Oh, I, didn't, I didn't know that part. Okay, so, fine. Supposedly, <laughs> it's supposed to be, though, a no-win situation, okay? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the thing about this is there's a presumption in when you say, oh, running the CDC or this or that. It's like basically being put in a car that, you know, you're going vroom, vroom, like a little kid, but the wheels aren't on the ground. Like, for many purposes, I don't think people realize this yet, for many purposes, the U.S. government does not exist. In the uh, sense, what do you mean? What do you mean? Meaning, like the CDC doesn't control disease, the FDA does not approve tests, the sure. the IRS okay. can barely even send checks. Like the in San Francisco, the three hundred million dollar bus lane takes like twenty years. You're you're having rapidly declining state capacity that is symbolized by radically increasing cost, cost. and time yeah. to do basic things. And what that ends up in is. It's like maintenance gets more and more and more expensive, and then it's not even done. And then you have, you know, feces on the street and fentanyl and this and that. And you have something where, like, this is, this is you know, if you want a projection, that's why I think the future is American anarchy. Like, the U.S. government doesn't exist in the sense that people think it does. It's like, like a Soviet bureaucracy, which, right. which basically, it doesn't have basic competence. It has people who have titles. And they prance around like actors, but they but don't Nancy, have the, Go ahead. I, I want to move on because we have some... Uh, but sure. I would argue that a no, lot of other countries who have even more state capacity than you, know, you would argue the U.S. does, did not handle who, code. Who, also. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So, well, that's the thing is, this is a Kobayashi Maru. Yeah, let me show you something. Actually, if you, if you go to COVID deaths and you just do worldwide all... So go to Google, type in COVID mm-hmm. deaths, do worldwide and all. Okay. So we are at 10.4 yeah, million Yeah, but no, do all, do all. Not United States, do worldwide. Okay, got it. Worldwide. Yep. All and right. then do all time. Okay, okay, wait, wait, so hold on. So take a look at that. So that initial ramp, okay, is going, like, so that 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 time, if you track the curve forward, that exponential up to right about there, maybe plus minus 30, that is basically when I was 
tweeting about COVID the most. Why? Because I was tracking the numbers. And it was completely, it was an empirical question and a very non-obvious question as to whether that would top out at 6,000 deaths per day or 60,000 deaths per day. Right. See what I'm saying? That is an empirical question, which I didn't know, but I did know that it was going to be nasty, right? We're very fortunate as literally an empirical question, whether that, you know, was 6,000 rather than 60,000, which a few more weeks of compounding could have gotten there. Okay. Which was like the Spanish flu or something else. Right. Uh, and here's, the, here's my, wait, wait let me say one yeah. thing. I actually need to go and look at the, the science on this. And, and this is a mental model, which I actually haven't looked at the literature, but my one guess of something I want to look at. So I want to just qualify what I'm about to say is that if you assume that susceptibility and severity are correlated, meaning those people, imagine that you have to have, you, you might get the virus on the first exposure. Or you might get it on the second, or you might get it on the third, or the fourth, or the fifth, right? Mm-hmm. So Li Wen Liang, perhaps he he got it on the first exposure, and then somebody who only got COVID in March got it on the second mm-hmm. or the third, right? You have to because mm-hmm. it's like you have a lucky break, you miss it, you get exposed, but you don't get it until right. If you have something where those people who are highly susceptible also have the highest severity, right? Then right. those who are hit by the virus early on disproportionately are those who just had a bad roll of the dice for their HLA antigens, for their immune, you know, their immune repertoire. It's like not like being naturally immune. It's like naturally susceptible, right? If we, you know, and I have to look at the literature on this to test this, I might be wrong, mm-hmm. but that hypothesis would explain why, you know, maybe fatality rates were higher early on and you had folks in their thirties dying and then they dropped off because it kind of just did this huge global search for those people who are the yep. most susceptible, killed them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the combination of eventually vaccines and then also like, you know, maybe more awareness or what have you, you know, reduced it. With that said, it's still like, you know, it's a 6 million person death event. But I think the thing is, state capacity doesn't solve this. That's what we now know. What really, not in the normal sense, what solves it is technological capacity, better vaccines and so on. The state capacity matters insofar as it drives technology. It's fundamentally a technological battle. Now, with Mm -hmm. that said... With better, with a better government, we would have had, you know, millions or billions of people with personal genomes today. We would have had millions or billions of people with quantified self-monitoring. And why would that have been important? Well, guess what? We have massive disease heterogeneity with something like COVID. Okay, and people, some people have really bad outcomes, and some have really, you know, like it's just cold and whatnot. Especially early on, it's very hard to figure out what was going on. And people were trying to do these very aggregate national level correlations. Oh, it's bad in Sweden and it's good here or whatever, right? And actually what you want, if you think about it from a stats perspective, that's a roll-up of a table where you've got one categorical column that is country and you're trying to do like, you know, aggregations and compare them. You can you can run into Simpsons paradox and other kinds of things when doing that, where the, you know, the the composition actually inverts the underlying correlations. Anyway, point is what you actually wanted to do, among other things, is have individual people with their own genomes and their own conditions, being able to see whether there were variants that made them more or less susceptible or at higher or lower severity, just in the same way that like warfarin dosing, for example, VKRC1, CYP2A9, those, those affect your warfarin dose, okay? So point being that the state capacity lack was not the coercive state capacity of didn't lock down hard enough and so on. It was in, you know, it was a cake that was baked years ago. It's like Bezos says, you know, today's quarter was baked like years ago, right? The lack of state capacity then was because 
state had not state had not allowed technological capacity, had not allowed societal capacity, had not allowed billions of genomes to be sequenced so we could figure out heterogeneity, didn't allow everyone to have health monitoring devices so we could figure out who was getting sick and track the virus across things. All that type of stuff was held back by the FDA in the US. And then the question is, why was that also held back in China? Well, China in some ways can innovate, but really much of their innovation, not all, much of their innovation is fork the root and then do it better. Like WeChat, like sort of forks the root. They've got now a Chinese root administrator, system administrator, then they do it better. But the fundamental moral innovation, something like FDA bad, yep. is not what they specialize in. Right. You know, it, yeah. many, right there, there, in many ways, they're like a, both Buddhism and communism are like imported social OSs. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. By the way, that graph is so grim and, you know, hopefully you'll never see this likes of it in the rest of our lifetime. Okay. So Balaji, I'm going to take this in a different direction. Please. I'm going to give you a couple of na names of people. And I think some of these people share opinions with you. Some of them, you know, don't share opinions. I'm kind of curious to get your take on their philosophy. And the first person I'm thinking about, especially when you talk about transhumanism and when you think about, you know, is actually Elon because Elon has talked a lot about expanding the state of consciousness. He's obviously building companies that are very relevant to this. You mentioned more than one. So when you think about Elon, where do you find yourself agreeing? What do you think of his body of work? Well, I respect Elon uh, in the, you know, for SpaceX and for Tesla. Uh, I mean, uh, and obviously Neuralink, boring company. He's, you know, unparalleled as an entrepreneur. I think, you know, obviously uh, this recent Twitter thing probably could have gone better for all parties. I don't know what the final outcome of that is going to be, but it's messy. You know, net net, he's made you know enormous contribution to man. He's restarted space travel. That's that alone is worth everything else. Like SpaceX to me is much more important than Tesla. I mean, Tesla is important, but SpaceX is really important, and Neuralink is important also. Brain machine interface and you know that kind of stuff. All of this stuff is important. It's like basically it's like a ten, a ten, a nine, and an eight or something like that. <laughs> most oh. most people aren't even at a, at, a, at a one or whatever. So. Oh. What do you think of Elon's, you know, I think one of the things Elon talks a lot about is how he worries about the population. It's actually interesting. That phrase now sure. is very different than the phrase, that meaning of the phrase maybe 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. less population and, rather than more. Yeah. 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 And, you know, do you worry about population collapse? Do you worry about us just running out of, either? should we all be having more kids? Like, what is your take on this kind of that arc of the human population? So this is, complicated, multifactorial, and so on. Well, first is I do think robotics over demographics in the sense that, you know, 12 people did Instagram and they beat the 12,000 at Kodak and that quality over quantity is, you know, important in that sense. Like basically just raw numbers won't necessarily win, right? With that said, I think it is good that Elon, you know, even if I wouldn't necessarily advise people to emulate having, you know, nine children by three different women and, you know, so on or whatever the number is. I don't know the exact count at this point. Even if that may not be the, you know, having lots of children is actually, I think, good for for a number of reasons, but it basically means you have a stake in the future. And you, you know, obviously there's, everyone will argue about this and so on and so forth. But let's say startup societies that have the moral, the one commandment of, you know, children good are, I think, going to be good ones. Whereas, the ones that are like degrowth and say, oh my God, don't have kids because of climate or whatever mm -hmm. are like, they're, they're like the shakers. Do you know the shakers? No. They're, that was, that's a, that's a great example. You know, you know, the Quakers, we probably not heard of the shakers. The shakers were one of these American societies that, you know, like various religious in, in, uh, innovations, which were like religious fundamentalists 
that believed in never having intercourse or anything like that. And so they died out, right? Duh. And so essentially uh, did not marry or bear children, right? So they did have, you know, influence, cultural influence, but fundamentally, you know, there was like natural selection against them themselves, you know? Right. right. And so, I mean, basically if you don't have those groups that have children are those that are going to inherit the future and not, you know, vice versa, Mm -hmm. right? So that's so one robotics or demographics because I don't I I disagree with the idea that just sheer numbers are everything. But number two is I do think you know if you have the capacity for it or the inclination for it, it's probably a good idea. And then number three is I also do think that we can do a lot to make it easier for women and for families and so on. From you know for example, one concept for a startup society would be something like communal childcare or round robin childcare is good. So, Which is sort of very similar to how a lot of like, at least growing up in India, you know, how a lot of like Eastern culture, especially Indian culture used to be at kind of this big joint mm-hmm. family. And, yeah, you know, but like the round robin system yeah. of like, you know, just having, being able to like not assign one particular person as a caretaker. Yeah, exactly. You know? so, so you have something where it's like, I don't know, just a toy example, the numbers might not work out, but you have 15 families, you know, uh, and you've got 30 parents and each one takes one day a month and they're watching all the kids in this sort of central playground kind of thing. And you have a compound or circle or something like that together. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, parents can come and just drop off the kids and go and do something with an uncle that they trust or an auntie that they trust. And now it's something where, I mean, the cost of childcare otherwise is like eye-watering and it pins, you know, women down. It's a disincentive for a child. I mean, it's like just one of many things, right? But that's like, you know, one focused innovation, right? Where men and women can contribute on raising their children, on building a community together and so on. And it's kind of like the homeschooling pods is, is sort of, you know, one, one piece of this. And so the point about this, by the way, is like, you know, you, you get out of the domain of just quote tech innovation into societal innovation, but you're mm-hmm. not doing it from the stupid, in my view, counterproductive policy lens, right? Mm-hmm. The, the reason is, People talk about democracy and capitalism a lot, and they have their merits, but they're fundamentally both conflict resolution mechanisms. Right. You know? mm-hmm. right. Because democracy is you've got some scarce resource, you have a vote on it, and capitalism is you have a scarce resource and you have a market on it, right? Mm-hmm. And they're good, but they're conflict resolution mechanisms. And often what you want is, you know, w- within a society, within a within a company, within a community, you're not auctioning everything or having a vote on everything. You're having sort of trusted allocation, which actually is smoother flowing. It's kind of you know, markets and democracy are for between, like outside of domain or membrane boundaries, right? So you can increase a membrane boundary from the individual or the small, mm-hmm. you know, couple to a, a larger group. Larger group. Get, yep. Yeah, yeah, get very far with that. Uh, by the way, I just have to say, I'm picturing the startup community and one day it's Balaji's turn to watch all the kids and there's a bunch of four-year-olds who's like, well, this uncle just pulled up Wikipedia on his laptop and showed us who Walter Durante is. Sure, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, actually very important. Very early on, all children should know who Walter Durante is. Um, <laughs> good joke, but... <laughs> good joke, but it's happening. Yes. Okay, so, okay, next question. AGI and AI, right? So, you know, in the last, say, six months, we have seen everything from Dolly 2 to this Google engineer who believed that... Uh, that was stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's... It, it, yes, well, you know, it's interesting, but, you know, the, uh, I, I guess the question for you would be, what do you think is the arc of AI? And should we ever need to worry about AGI in some shape or form? So I'm, I am generally an AGI bull. So this is a complicated task. Let me see if I can 
you know, so first of all, artificial special intelligence as opposed to general intelligence. I don't think anyone is really questioning that now because it's, a, you know, th there's this great cartoon that Kurzweil had in his book that I think Elon actually tweeted a while ago, which shows a guy scribbling something like, computers will never compose a sonnet. Okay, X. Computers will never win a game of chess. X. You know, and he's like throwing these out. He's like furiously trying to find something that humans can still do that computers cannot do, right? Because computers keep progressing. And the thing is that if you talk about special intelligence, right? You know, as opposed to general intelligence, the ability to draw a drawing, make a painting, translate something, you know, summarize something, you know, do sentence completion or, you know, what have you, it's getting really good, right? And we're also seeing that GPT-3 is a real breakthrough because it's sort of turning language itself into a programming language. Like right. pretty much anything can, you know, so, so using GPT-3, you can have it be like upstream or something like it, upstream of an image generator and upstream of a code generator and upstream of this. Mm -hmm. So anything we can describe with human language is something that we can now code, right? So you could probably have it code video game strategies. And so on. in a mm -hmm. very compact way, you can have it, if it's got enough examples and mappings and knows the vocabulary, that like the, the power of language is actually being the bus for all of this stuff mm -hmm. is like a new thing. And, and I feel that that's like only really obvious over the last couple of years with really large language models. And I don't think it was obvious before then. Guern has actually a good review of this on, he had a long Reddit thread on, on kind of LLMs and the state of LLMs, which is worth reading. So artificial special intelligence, I don't think is really in doubt. Any particular area, usually people will say, yeah, I can imagine how you build an AI for that. You know, right. you, what, right? what about the AGI side of things? So the, one of the issues here is, you know, the Turing test is actually almost obsolete and not obsolete now, but basically the Turing test has been passed for many definitions of past because you can yeah. have very realistic chatbots that can fool a large number of humans much of the time. Mm -hmm. I do think that what is still a frontier would be what I might call the multiplayer Turing test, where you have a bunch of AIs talking to each other and then you have a human looking down on them and saying, is this a realistic conversation or interaction? Okay. Right. And mm -hmm. Basically, because that, you know, like, like, could you have a bunch of AIs and they generate a Slack or they generate something that looks very like, like a group of humans interacting, but they're actually all droids, you know, underneath, yeah, right? Yeah. I don't know. That's one possibility. Yeah. But community behavior is still not there. The reason is, if you really could get that, then you could start making economics and history into empirical sciences. Why? With, so... This is actually in the book, but basically, you know, it's saying past performance doesn't predict future results. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So in physics, it does. Right. Sure. Because you have time invariant systems. Right. right? You, you, right. The laws of physics, you know, basically do not change over time. Over time. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's certain kinds of media, like, like a, in the sense of physical media that have memory of some kind, you know, or, or some sort of like deterioration over time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Hysteresis or stuff like that. Right. Mechanical, you know, stress or things like that. But to first order, like Maxwell's equations aren't time varying. Right. Mm -hmm. or, or rather, you know, the, the, the equations themselves do not change over time. And so, so what that means is you can rerun an experiment. You can go and put a projectile back on the launch pad and hit the, the thing. And if you reset the initial conditions, it'll fly the same way. You know, mm -hmm. assuming the wind isn't there. And so the initial conditions are the same. Sure. Mm -hmm. yep. yeah. The device will boot up at the same time. Okay. Whereas if you run the same trading algorithm in the market, it'll eventually adapt 
and you won't make a profit anymore. It is because there are humans on the other side, and it's not not a time invariant system that past performance doesn't predict future results in finance. Mm -hmm. And that's why all the financial time series analysis and so on is actually quite distinct from, let's say, the time series analysis you'd apply to, you know, mechanical engineering. You know, like a, a car's juddering up and down. You can yeah. reset the car and repeat the experiment. The financial stuff, you only have one shot. Okay, what's my point? Point is that even despite this, there's certain somewhat predictable things you can get out of microeconomics. You can get supply and demand. You can get, you know, certain kinds of utility curves or whatever. Auctions and stuff work a certain way in a predictable way. Human behavior is somewhat predictable in certain games. In the same way, you can sort of predict that a pitcher will throw mm -hmm. a pitch and a batter will swing at it. Mm -hmm. I think a frontier would be if you can start having AIs trading crypto and you start being able to like reproduce certain human behaviors. So now you have not just one path through, but it's like, okay, given these initial conditions, we get these outcomes, right? So eventually, what you could, my point is that you could start doing something where you start making at least microeconomics a testable science. You could simulate mm -hmm. out, if you could have the multiplayer Turing test and a bunch of bots actually generating human-like behaviors, they could live a thousand years in a minute or 10 years in a minute. Sure, right. yeah. Then you could have a society of hundreds of thousands of people actually doing an economy and trading back and forth and seeing what would happen. That is as far ahead of where we are today, I think, yeah. as Turing's test was from where was. he was, right? Yeah. But I do think of that as a frontier, as like simulated societies as opposed to simulated people. Because then it's not chat bots, but it's like emergent actions and, and stuff like that that would actually give us information. Yeah. You know, I and love that's this. A that's a parallel realities too. Parallel realities. Go ahead. I, I love Thanks. it. And, and, and I grew up, like, for example, reading like Michael Crichton's Swarm, which mm -hmm. deals with you know agent-based systems, and we have companies like Improbable, which do that. Okay. Again, we spent over two and a half hours, and you know, you're full of ideas across probably a dozen disciplines at this point. And I guess, what is your secret of a studying across disciplines and b to productivity? So maybe let's just start with. How are you productive? What are your tips and tricks to learn? What do you do all day? Well, okay, so what do I do? I mean, I have I have no desire to do anything other than work and study. So like, you know, a normal person wants to go to the club or, you what? know, so I, like, I'll, I'll, hold on. I, I, it's like you're like this sentient AI who's just making things up about like what other people do. <laughs> your reference, okay. I, you're, I, I, there's maybe a set of go people who want to go to the discotheque as, uh, as Liz Lemon would say from 30 Rock. But that's, yes, I, I don't think that's what normal people generally want to do. But you point take. There's a subset of people who will, oh, I want to go to Tahoe. Oh, I want to go to the club. Oh, I want to go on a vacation. To Miami. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of stuff, right? And look, that's all great. I'm very happy for them. This is good. But, you know, for the most... But this is why they'll never do anything useful in their lives. I didn't say that. But some good of them point. are actually like... I, I'm saying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, there's a certain kind. There's a different kind of personality, okay? A different <laughs> kind of personality is the COO personality, right? Okay. So there's the CTO and the COO, you know? Like, those okay. are two different kinds of CEOs or two different kinds of founders, right? Ben calls them ones and twos. I call them like the COO CEO and the CTO CEO. And okay. the the difference is that the CTO, the chief technology officer type CEO, is like a Zuck or a Larry Page or a Drew Houston, fundamentally a technologist, fundamentally like one with the machine, you know, 
figures out something new and, you know, is pushing it forward and is like, okay at management, but you know, their passion is really for like, you know, the, the, the magic, right. And, right. Or, or can grow to become okay at management. The COO CEO, the chief operating officer CEO is more of the CEO from central casting. They're the, you know, one to N rather than zero to one type CEO. And they love process and they love to keep things humming. And there's a big difference, which is the CTO type is usually a night person and the COO type is usually a morning person. The COO type is usually like religious about exercise. Like, you know, Keith Raboy is like that, you know, Tim Cook, right? Travis Kalanick. These are amazing operational, you know, executives who just the number of operations per second that like just sheer level energy they have to just turn the crank and get three days work worth of work done in one day. And just the boundless energy and multiprocessing is there, but they're not as naturally drawn to heads down rumination, you know, zero to one type stuff. Right. So the COO CEO, the chief, that, that type can schedule a vacation. In fact, they love doing that stuff. They love scheduling everything. Scheduling is what they live for. They schedule shit, right? And the CTO- I, mean, I just like, I'm getting like, we're getting the Balaji model of, you know, humanity, right? Which I just, I, I, right. I just love it. Of Basically, course, there's people who do, who, I mean- be a CTO. And go to the club. And, do, and go to the club. Yeah, the, the, the chief operating officer, you know, is the kind of person who can, basically they can schedule vacation which people are like, of course you're going to schedule vacation. But to me, it's like, how can I like schedule relaxation? Those seem like almost antithetical concepts. Like, oh, I'm going to go and like go down this checklist of, you know, passport this and blah, blah, all this, you know, (laughs) like it's like invading a country. You've got this checklist of all this stuff. You have to, you know, MREs and, you know, like, and you have have to do all this stuff (laughs) in order to take this complicated. You are talking about Boarding an airplane and going to another place, right? Well, like, well so, so uh, what I'm talking so about is like a life. scheduled vacation. Like you're going and I'm going to go to this tourist destination. I'm going to go to this tourist. Like scheduling yeah. stuff is work, right? That's what I mean. Sure. Yeah. You know, there's <laughs> a certain kind of, you know, like a, if you've heard the term like a, gosh, I'm not sure they have it. It's not in France anymore, but it's it's a certain kind of tourist who must see every single spot and they check it off and they're like, you know, boom, take a photo and they're in front of it. And it's like next. And, and. <laughs> You know, the thing is, I, I somewhat joke about this, but, you know, Instagram is for people who go outside. Okay. And <laughs> Twitter, Twitter is for intellectuals, you know, quote unquote, right? And meaning basically, you know, lazy people, verbal people, whatever, right? Anyway, so what I do answer is I, I do work out. I, I work out. I work. I do go outside, but I go outside to work out or whatever, you know, swim or run or something. And, you know, like I'll sometimes do sun and steel. I've got like my weights and stuff and I'll just go out there and reduce the property values by clanking the weights and bystanders look at it like, oh, you know, it's, uh, right. and so sun and steel. Sun and steel. Could you explain that? <laughs> sun and steel. Uh, so this guy named BAP online who, you know, tweets a lot about sun and steel. I disagree with a lot of stuff he writes. For the 10th time, we're, this video is not going to stay up on YouTube. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. So, so BAP, I'm not going to expand the acronym, but you can find it. So I, uh, some of BAP stuff is funny. Some of it is not. Or, well, I, some of it's funny. Some of it I agree with. Some of it I disagree with. But, you know, one thing I do agree with is the, you know, lifting weights, being outside is good, right? Like seeing the sun. Lift, and it's actually kind of hard to do that, by the way, to do sun and steel, to actually like be outside lifting weights. 
you kind of have to set that up because you have to like move the weights outside and you kind of have to either have a garage or some kind of, you know, thing you have to like consciously do that. It's not like a trivial thing to do, but lifting weights outside, I strongly recommend it because it's kind of awesome, you know, and it's a good workout and whatnot. Anyway. So, but I have to say another timeline, Balaji is a fitness influencer, right? <laughs> so, really? so, you know, you, I, you will never believe it. Okay. But in the two thousands, I was super freaking jacked. I was as, I was as jacked as a South Asian can be given our genetic constraints. And I know, I mean, where, how can you say jacked in Thaisadu? Is there a photo of this on the internet I, anyway? Not on the internet, not on the internet, you know, but, but I, someday I'll show you if you want, whatever. I, it be, it, because the thing is, whenever I did, I did it to, or I do, I do it to like an insane level, you know? And yeah. so all the bro science type stuff or whatever, I, you know, just kind of like, you know, you get up and if our ancestors would do yoga or something like that, I would just like, you know, run and lift. You know, I used to... I, I think they just like prayed in temples all day. Uh, like, uh, I think that's all they did. Uh, well, <laughs> well, but, but it's the same kind of thing. You know, you do the yoga, you do the physical type of thing. And and uh, the... Anyway, po point is that, so work out, work read and mm -hmm. what's my recreation is i don't know like a prince of to mathematics or shams outlines you know shams right like Sh yeah yeah <laughs> i so, have not heard somebody say shams in so long oh, i was like what <laughs> yeah you know for the technical people watching this you probably know shams outlines but if you don't know shams outlines get shams outlines and just do problems don't listen to the teacher first maybe not ever but if you need to you know just just do problems out of Shams and you'll just very quickly like placement test yourself and figure out how good you are in a given topic. Like I would give like Shams, you know, on X or Y or Z to somebody who's an executive that I needed, you know, to level up in a certain area. And I'd be like, okay, <laughs> here's was on X day, maybe even talking two days or three days. Oh my goodness. Well, on the topic of working out... Bringing you example uh, PSD. Uh, yeah, I was not good at that. Um, <laughs> on, the, on the topic of maybe working out and maybe just overall like health, what do you think of... You know, I, I know you mentioned Andrew Huberman. What do you think of his content, his protocols? You know, what, what protocols do you wind up following? And just how do you think about... You know, fitness. fitness, healthy, overall wellness. Well, I'm like down like, you know, I don't know, 30 something pounds or whatever since I was extreme fat. So, you know, three years ago or so. But how do I think about it? I, I mean, basically, uh, I feel we are just so underinvested in health as like a civilization and society. I, that's actually one of the few silver linings out of COVID. So I feel people have become more health conscious as a function of that, you know? And insofar as you get like a, a V-shaped recovery where you're taking one path economically, you know, in the tech tree, and now you're exploring another path in the tech tree, I think much more investment in quantified self and life extension. You know, for example, I've talked about this before. I talked about this 10 years ago, but I do actually think fitness is the backdoor to medicine. And the reason is that medicine has construed in the U.S. and, you know, through the U.S. because it's got, you know what harmonization is? No. In, in what context? Harmonization in the context of regulation is the way that unelected American bureaucrats rule the world. Meaning the FD, just like, for example, you've got a small website and they outsource their login to Facebook. You have a small country and it outsources its regulation to FDA mm -hmm. or SEC mm -hmm. or CFTC or all of them, which means that these guys you've never heard of, who you've never had, they're not elected and can't be fired in some basement in Silver Spring, Maryland have a veto on worldwide biomedical everything.
There's never been an election. I don't think you've ever seen an election run on CDRH's policy, right? Or even, mm-hmm. you know, nobody even knows what they are. So it's but like, it's actually true in the, in the internet. I was just chatting with somebody about this, with the EU and say privacy laws. So if you look at something like say GDPR and in a way, when you travel to Europe, you click on cookies anywhere, it came out of the EU. Yeah. And then it kind of became a thing globally. And it's kind of the same phenomenon. It's not in medical medicine, but you yeah, it's a, have a, a bureaucracy set some policies and then every agency around the world winds up adopting it. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I saw that, EU is trying to regulate. I mean, they had this ridiculous thing. I forgot who posted about it, but they're like, yeah, okay, the US and China have are doing all this AI. We're behind, but you know what we're going to be a leader in? The regulation of AI. Okay. God, and they, they yeah. literally have something which I tweeted about, which is like, you know, the use of logical or other statements. I'm like, they're literally trying to regulate if then statements and logic under the grounds of uh, yes. regulating <laughs> AI. During test. Yeah. Yeah. But, but so I want to bring it back to. Huberman and neuroscience and wellness, right? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I like Andrew Huberman. I, I think that transhumanism, you know, what Huberman is doing, what Sinclair is doing and so on, this is along, you know, along with network states and startup societies, this is next, next, right? Like crypto, you know, like I'm all about, uh, think about how much I talked to you about Bitcoin 10 years ago, right? Like, and that was 10 oh, years wow. ago when the price was in double digits, you know, right? And go ahead. Are these- <laughs> I should have bought some Bitcoin then, yeah, but did just, not. It's just this uh, second reminder of this episode. Yeah, sure, sure. Like, okay, yeah. What did you do with that? All yeah. you exactly, Arthi. <laughs> but, but basically, I, you know, if you think of it as uh, startup, you know, tech companies, then crypto protocols, startup cities, network states, and yeah. then, you know, human 2.0, transhumanism, right? Optimalism. Why? Because network states enable that. Network mm-hmm. states allow people to have medical sovereignty, your body, your choice, consensually upgrading themselves, mm-hmm. regardless of what others say. If they are, you know, if they're consenting adults, they should basically be able to do it if they're not harming others. At least that's, that's a guiding principle of this. Other people will disagree with that or whatever, and they'll have various objections. But I think that if you can... If we can carve out those jurisdictions, we will see like 50 years of medical progress in like two years. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Like all of this pent up, the entire genomics revolution. For, uh, to give you just a proof of that, okay, I'm going to show you two things. Arun's law, okay. Are you familiar with that? No, what? Okay, so you know Moore's law. Yes. Yeah. Right? Have you ever heard of Arun's law? No. No. Okay. Arun's law is, it's also in the book, it's Moore's law backward. So essentially what FDA has managed to do, and by the way, at the FDA, they delete T-H-E. So they just call themselves FDA as opposed to the FDA. So FDA has managed to, in a period of what we think of as huge technological innovation, at least in computers, increase the price of drug development like 100x. Okay. Something's weird here, right? Is it, oh, all the good drugs have, you know, not been found. Now, recently this has started to like, I mean, you know, some some kind of trends can only go so far and then they have to reverse or whatever. Recently, this seems to have flattened out a little bit. Like there's a possibility of a break here because FDA, you know, uh, one thing again, just it's hard to remember this, but just like two years ago, it was very, you know, it was very aberrant or not aberrant. It's very unpopular to talk about the COVID stuff when I did. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's hard to remember now how taboo it was to criticize regulations in 2010. 
Right, right, right. Okay. In some ways, we've actually significantly liberalized where that is very much within the domain of conversation because, you know, what happened was the regulators basically and the establishment won a pyrrhic victory over Uber. Hmm. Okay. They managed to, you know, get Travis, you know, they managed to decapitate the company and get Travis out and, you know, basically stir up this whole hate thing. But ride sharing still exists. Airbnb still exists, right? right. Uber is there. Grab is there. Didi is there. You know, they're trying to kind of jam it into the garage and mess up the pricing, but the concept is there. And whether it's self-driving cars or something, it's basically not going to go away. Like it'll be there in some form, right? Probably. So this is the cost per human genome. And so mm -hmm. this has declined by several orders of magnitude. So drug yeah. development costs has, has increased, but the increased. cost per human genome has declined. So the basic science has dramatically improved, but the regulatory cost has increased. And so it's this enormous, it's like this rubber band. It's just like the thing with San Francisco. Right. Uh, do, do you see, you want another kind of thing? Do you see my tweet on San Francisco on 2019? Which one? Uh, <laughs> this one is actually, this is actually a good one, right? So it's in 2019, right before the... Um, You're talking about the 20-year train thing, right? The 20-year train? What do you mean? The 20, years, the 20 years to work on the station. I, it would, that that one is is important also, but basically here. Take I like a, look a lot at, of tweets on San Francisco. I know that's why I was like, which one? And that is a, that is an through. important one also. But take a look at this one, and then also Paul PG's response. Okay, I was arguing a little bit, you know, with Elad Gill, is a great guy, smart guy, and this is pre-pandemic, and you know, whatever. But he was essentially arguing that SF was going to be around to stay, and so on, right? And I said. San Francisco has 30,000 car break-ins a year. The streets are filthy and a health hazard. It's extraordinarily expensive. Yet feces and prices rise in tandem. This yeah. is a bubble that which will, this is just like my thing about if Room's Law going like this and the genomics going like that, the competing, yeah. you know, you can't have both the, you know, feces and prices rise in tandem. This is a bubble which will burst when the right alternative finally appears like taxi medallions. And when I say they rise in tandem, you saw, you saw the poop graph, right? Like reports, graph. you know, it's, here, so it's literally an exponential I mean, I'm not even, I'm not saying like an exponential, like, oh, it's a casual thing. I mean, here, just show, for, for those who don't know, it, it is it is definitely true that there's parts of India that are much, much cleaner than San Francisco, right? So it's literally yeah. an exponential, okay? So, or at least it's, it's definitely up dramatically, okay? 10X and, you know, or 5X in a few years. So the, the basically the bubble which will burst when the right alternative finally appears like tax medallions, and then you go down and I said, it's like, yeah. it's a terrible product with great legacy distribution, when the true alternative finally arrives, exit will be rapid. And that was like oh, yeah, before the emergence one. of... Go ahead. Yeah, no, I said, I, I remember this one from and, 2019. I remember it. And yeah. some ways I think the COVID exodus might be well, a part so, of it. So now here's what's interesting. Here's Paul Graham's remark. Which I, and what's funny is these were thesis and antithesis and the synthesis, I think we both sort of proved right. Historically, been common <laughs> when they decline, it's always due to some external force, e.g. the whole country does, not simply an alternative appearing, Right. How about yeah, that? Yeah, I think in some ways, I think another way to think about this from PG is that SF and tech are Lindy, right? In And, you know, no. and the, the presence of Stanford, it's kind of like Hollywood and movies or finance and Wall Street or so on and so forth, that there is this Lindy nature to it, which makes it hard to exit from. Okay. All right. Well, well I'll say one thing, because SF is actually is a tech capital is actually very new. It only really started in 2008. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so it's really the Bay yeah. Area, right? And Stanford. The Bay, Area, uh, the Bay Area has been around for a while, but I guess here's here's my point is, the, I was bringing that up because it's a rubber band snap, right? Yeah. You had something which, on the one hand, you had all of these you know, tech companies that were 
NSF and had made all these huge investments there. Then you had the city just getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And yeah. yet the tech companies also kept increasing in value. And so they were able to like get all this money from the cloud to subsidize this absolutely, these insane class of what I call political billionaires. You know what a political yeah. billionaire is? No. Political is somebody who controls a billion dollar political budget. Right? Oh, okay. gotcha. Okay. Okay. So Got it. All, all of those, and actually they're much richer than billionaires. Why? Because San Francisco is $13 billion budget that is just literally thrown in a yeah. gutter, right? That $13 billion budget that pays the entire homeless industrial complex and all these do-nothing people that, you know, you have like these roughly, you know, I think it's like on there are 10 supervisors, I forgot the exact number, I think it's 12 supervisors, something, and a mayor. And so you can consider them political billionaires, which have about a billion dollars that they incinerate each year. And it's actually even worse than a normal billionaire. I mean, a a normal billionaire has a billion dollars lifetime, and that's illiquid net worth. This is a billion in cash that these people are incinerating. You know, by the way, what, um, we're, do, we're doing a live stream of yeah. this, and one of the people in the chat earlier was actually Gary Tan, who's actually been doing a lot of great work oh, in yeah. trying to reform SF. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question, which I know you guard, you know, your privacy pretty deeply. If you had to name three cities that you think people should choose to live in across the world in some order, which three cities would you pick and why? For what purpose? Anything: quality of life, access to opportunity, access to amazing people. Um, it's a good question. Well, you know, Henley Global is, you know, a site that, uh, you know, studies like migration of high net worth and whatnot. And that's only one indicator, of course. But an interesting thing is all the big countries are losing, you know, their millionaires and billionaires and what have you, right? So obviously Russia, but China, and actually India is generating them almost as quick as it's losing them, something like that. And the US has actually, it used to be a net destination for millionaires, billionaires. But it's actually dropped 86% over the last three years since the pandemic from like net 10,000 something coming in per year to like a thousand something. And it'll probably turn negative soon. And so that's an interesting point, which is, wait a second, if all the big guys are losing, who's gaining? It's places like the UAE, like Switzerland, like Monaco, Singapore, actually Israel is a big gainer. Okay. And these small jurisdictions, I think, are generally... You know, if the 20th century was the Giga states, the 21st is in part about the small states and the network states. And actually, you could have a neo Hanseatic League. Do you know what the Hanseatic League was? It was like a group of city states that allied together for common defense against like marauders and pirates and so on. So you could have a network Hanseatic League, you know, where you have a bunch of you know smaller principalities that align together non geographically because the internet means they're much more connected than normal. You know, they can align for the purpose of trade and communication. Normally, all these sort of packs and stuff are geographical. But people live in more and more on the internet. They've shared metaverse kind of things. They yep. can be non-geographical to a greater extent. Okay, so I guess those small countries would be, I think, where you'd go if if it's just generic, like where I think best generic quality of life is. Mm-hmm. But it very much depends on what you want to do, because I think increasingly we're seeing more and more regulatory variation. So if you yeah. want to do stem cells, well, Germany had more liberal laws. If you want to do nuclear power, well, Wyoming has liberalized there. You know, if you want to do Bitcoin, then maybe El Salvador yeah. and so on and so forth, right? Like drones, I believe Nebraska and I think even Brazil has liberal drone laws. And so the, so the point is that Regular, and this is actually an article that Anderson and I discussed, Mark Anderson and I discussed, and he actually 
has something on this from several years ago, around the same time, which is turn Detroit into Drone Valley in Politico, right? It's basically this concept of, you know, at the time I was tweeting about special innovation zones. So this kind of came out of some of that, I think. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. Yeah, right? there's, a, there's a good list out there. Okay. Last yeah. question for the day. Please. It's been an amazing few hours. You know, Lex Friedman likes to ask, you know, what is the meaning of life? You know, you accomplished so much, you know, you know, in a relatively short period of time. And if you are saying, you know, 50, 60 years from now, maybe before upload being uploaded to the singularity consciousness in some kind, and you were looking back, you know, and you were like, well, this gave my life meaning, this gave my life purpose. What do you think that would have to be? What would you have to have accomplished? What would you want to have done? What would make you go like, this was good? That was a pretty decent life. Yeah. Before you become part Uh, of the singularity. Good question. I think getting the first network state going would be pretty big, but I actually think that that's just the lead up to getting human 2.0 going. And yeah. So like, you know, there's a Tesla and then there's a SpaceX or whatever. <laughs> if, yeah. we, if we can make it happen, obviously it's it's a little bit, it's different in many ways. You know? The 10, and, 10, 9 and 8. Yeah. Oh, something like that. I mean, look, yeah. you know, obviously we'll see, you know, getting the first network state. I mean, it's funny, just thinking about that, by the way, just talk one second about that. The, one of the reasons I gave away the book is, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I don't care about sale. I, it's nice to have sales. Don't get me wrong. It's whatever is good. People can buy if they want to read it offline. But reasons at like, you know, the networkstate.com and all the stuff that's being pushed there is the metric in 10 years is not a million sales, but one network state. Hmm. There you right? go. And so that's, I think that'll be pretty big if we can make that happen. Yeah. If you're going to create a sun and steel network state, yeah. Shrem <laughs> should be a part of that. Well, Bhaji, oh, he'll be so jacked. He's already tall. So then he'll be like, you know. <laughs> On that note, Balaji, you're probably one of the most interesting people I've ever had the pleasure of knowing and calling my friend. And this was amazing. And if if, if humanity ever figures a network state and if humanity ever figures out how to make it through two, I think you'd be a key part of it. So thank you so, so much. The book, the site is, you know, up there. We'll have it in the links. Go check it out. Go share it. Go spread the word. And yeah. This was amazing. This um, video might awesome. not be on YouTube for long, so watch it when you can. All right. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> but thank you so much, Wally. This was, Thanks, okay. this was amazing. Great. This is fun. Well, okay. Yeah, this okay. is awesome. <laughs> All right. <laughs> on that note. What, what was that? Three hours? That was three hours of... Uh, episode you've ever done? Three hours of just Balaji <laughs> downloaded. It was great. It was, so fun. it was really fun. I think it's like, to, I think to what you said, it's a 2013 startup school thought, like, you know, the the through line all the way from there to the network state, I think is just, you can kind of see the vision of that, like, you know, thinking about US as Microsoft and the exit all the way to like your life's goal being getting the first network state out, I think yeah. is like pretty remarkable. I'm going to say at some point in time, in the next 10, 20 years, somebody who's watching this is going to go... I remember Palaji talking about this oh, yeah. on that show yeah. way back then, and this thing happened. I mean, I think it, it, he's already done that for the pandemic. He's done that for a bunch of things where, you know, he's basically called it. And he seems to have this like great ability to call, in his words, things that can that can be exponential. And so I, I it, this was a lot of fun. You know, yeah. I had I had these lofty expectations and we totally surpassed them well balaji did and so thanks to balaji for just an amazing several hours of this and thanks everyone hope you all had fun until next time